did it come from? Gentlemen, do you realize what we've found? It came from outer space to fill the world with terror. What earthly power can stop this terror? That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop. The from outer space. Rolling. Here we go. A lie can travel halfway across the world before the truth even gets its shoes on. Unknown. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. All right, I'm going to go bold with my quote, boys. Here goes. Facts are threatening to those invested in fraud. Deshan Stokes. And welcome back to the podcast from outer space. It's your boy, Rob Scott. We got Billy the Kid, a.k.a. the Korean Cowboy in the studio. Yeehaw! What's going on, gentlemen and world? And as always, it's Ryan Scott. Aloha, everybody, and happy Halloween to everybody out there far and wide, wherever you may be. And Loyal Legion, this will be episode 121, where we will be discussing the life and times of Ed and Lorraine Warren. And a happy All Hallows Eve to everyone out there. Yes, once again, the Halloween special has returned. (sighs) And this year, we are bringing you the Loyal Legion, as Rob said, the life and times of Ed and Lorraine Warren. Now, similar to our Ouija episode, I feel like a good amount of people out there, especially fans of this show, have at least heard of the Warrens or, you know, the popular image of them portrayed in the massively successful Conjuring franchise. Am I right there? Yes. Uh, Everyone that's seen the Conjuring universe and all that good stuff, I'm sure you're well aware. And, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, chances are you know a thing or two about Ed and Lorraine. Yes. Now... If you have no idea, the Warrens were, RIP, the quintessential American paranormal investigator power couple. Edward was a self-proclaimed demonologist, author, and lecturer, and Lorraine was allegedly a clairvoyant and light trance medium. A lot of air quotes in this one, guys. Now, working together, they became associated with many acclaimed cases of supposed, air quotes, hauntings, now often described as the most famous demonologists in North America and the founders of the New England Society for Psychic Research, they claim to have investigated over 10,000 cases spanning their 50-year career, having dedicated a majority of their life to the paranormal. Now, many of the stories popularized by the Warrens have been adapted into countless books, dozens of films, television series, documentaries, and even two full-on film franchises, the Amityville Horror and the films in the Conjuring universe, collectively grossing well over billions of dollars and being based in part or in full on the paranormal investigations or events that the Warrens are said to have witnessed and described. Now, as is the case with many of our episodes, the public seems to be divided right down the middle on the Warrens, with many people believing in the Warrens' abilities and life's work dedicated to helping people who are victims of hauntings, 
with the good faith of the Catholic Church on their side. And on the flip side, skeptics seem to view the Warrens at best as tellers of meaningless ghost stories and at worst as dangerous frauds with shady business practices taking advantage of many of the very families they are said to have helped. Air quote. Now, we'll get into all of this and more on today's episode, but... Before we hop into the history here, let's get into a little setup, uh, you know, because we're talking shop, uh, you know, we're thinking, hey, what what are we going to do for the Halloween special this year? Running through ideas when Rob blurted out the Warrens, Billy and I, we're immediately on board. You know, it's it's no secret. We've discussed on many past episodes, the three of us, we all grew up ghost hunting. We're massive horror fans. So this topic is right in our wheelhouse. You know, the Conjuring flicks, as embellished as they may be, love them. You know, there's no denying that. So I think it goes without saying we were all familiar with the warrants. Now, for me, I remember actually my middle school te- science teacher. So this was like eighth grade. I believe Um, she was telling our class about the Amityville horror haunting when the news of the remake came out. So this would have been 2005. Now, of course, I immediately go home, look this shit up. I had Rob take me to the film because it was rated R. Uh, You know, it scared the piss out of both of us. But I think just in looking that up was the first time I kind of came across the Warrens. And we even did we did a full Amityville episode years ago. Episode number 37, if you want to check it out. And in there, I'm sure that we at least touched on the Warrens. And then, you know, obviously once the Conjuring films started to come out, I became more and more aware of at least how this couple was portrayed in those films or, you know, a general overview of of what they're all about, even though that is far from reality, as we'll see. But, you know, this is Hollywood. It's highly romanticized, dramatized. I get that. You know, they got to fucking, they got to do it up, do it up. Now, you know, how about you guys? Do you remember when you first heard about the Warrens and how did you or do you view them? Um, you know, I mean, I think we've all done our fair amount of research for this episode, but I mean, I guess before that, did you view them as genuine or did you view them as grifters? You know, I mean, what do we got for a brief one, two on the warrants? Yeah. So, uh, when I first saw the, the first conjuring movie, um, I absolutely loved it. The acting was on point. Cinematography was superb and the scares were definitely on point as we'd all agree. I mean, Bathsheba, the witch was one of the scariest ghouls I'd ever seen in cinema by that point, <laughs> especially, um, you know, the scene where she jumps down from the armoire. Oh yeah. The piss out of me. Very Remember scary. That? Like, That's scary stuff. Just, dude. yeah, man, it was, it was crazy. Cause you weren't expecting it. It was just like the ultimate jump scare. Um, but I digress. I also love the subsequent films in the conjuring universe, including conjuring two and the first Annabelle film. I will say, however, the movies following those felt forced and more more like money grabs to me than anything quality or, or substantial. Now, you didn't like the... Uh, sorry to cut you off here. You didn't like the um, the follow-up Annabelle's? I don't think so. I, I really liked the first one, but if I recall, I wasn't really a fan of the like Annabelle origin or... I forget what the other one was called. Uh, coming Home. It's where It's where they're like in the Warren's house and it's like based around their daughter and all the fucking creepy shit in their museum. Maybe. Okay. That's, that's my fault for asking. Maybe we get more into the films at that point a little later on, but, uh, 
continue. I'm sorry. Yeah, dude. No worries. Um, so, you know, as we, everyone that's seen the Conjuring movies, Ed and Lorraine Warren were portrayed as the quintessential married couple with their love grounded in their Catholic faith. And it was definitely endearing and inspiring, to be honest. And, you know, I believed it. I fell for it. Hook and sinker. <laughs> hook, line, and sinker. <laughs> yeah, hook, line, and sinker. Uh, but as the years have gone by and the movies got worse and worse, it just became more and more unbelievable. And um, I started feeling a little bit more skeptical as to how they were portraying them on screen. Okay. But yeah, I mean, and as we'll get into the episode further along, things will get very hairy. (laughs) I would say that my exposure to the Warrens happened a little bit earlier on than Bill's, but uh, the Conjuring series is definitely up there, as you said. Um, And, you know, as Ryan just said, uh, the 2005 film Amityville Horror uh, definitely scared the piss out of us. And when I got home, I was like dude, is this real? Like, I got to look this up. And then I'm like doing some research, finding out about them. And like, I didn't really do like a deep dive on Ed and Lorraine at the time, but I was just like, Oh cool. Like these guys were like real life ghost hunters and started discovering, you know, a little bit more about them. And then as time goes on, I kind of am starting to realize why they didn't play such a big role in, in those particular movies. But, you know, we'll get to that later in the outline. Um, Okay. And, I mean, you know, can we just get this out of the way right up top? Because I don't know about you guys, but, like, I knew knew the Warrens looked a bit different from, you know, um, what's his name? Patrick Wilson and Vera Vera Firmiga, um, the actors portraying them. But, I mean... You know, goddamn, dude. Ed looks like in real life. Ed looks like the fucking Maury's wigs guy from Goodfellas. <laughs> you know, he's like, our wigs don't come off even if you're possessed by a demon. <laughs> like, uh, well, it's yeah. hilarious too. As I watched an interview with them, I think it was from like the '80s or something like that. And he, and Ed's just wearing these aviators, man. And I'm like, oh, dude's dude's wearing sunglasses inside during an interview. This dude, guy's yeah, awesome. He's going full Jim Jones, and you know, yeah. He, yeah, he sounds like fucking Joe Pesci in Casino. You know, he's like, and if and if the demon's not exercised, I'll come around again because I'm stupid <laughs> and I don't give a fuck about demons. That's what I do. <laughs> you know, like that's Ed and Lorraine looks like the goddamn crypt keeper. Uh, you know, I mean, maybe well, she does now, but I, I think, I think they did a better job on casting her. I mean, like young Lorraine does kind of look like the actress, you know, I will admit that because I was trying to figure out, I was like who she looks like somebody, but I can put my thumb on it. But I guess, you know, when you do look up the pictures of young Lorraine, she's not that far off from Vera, um, for mega. So I guess it's not that bad, but I will say James Wan did them a solid with the casting on that one. I mean, she's no 15-year-old, though, but she she didn't look too bad. <laughs> okay, okay. We're getting a little ahead of ourselves there. Now, Now, without further ado, let's get into the life and times of Ed and Lorraine Warren. So Ed Warren Miney. Uh, was born September 7th, 1926. Uh, His father was a Connecticut state trooper and a devout Catholic, apparently never missed a mass, according to Ed. 
And Ed would say, why the fuck are you a statey making 30 grand a year, Dad? (laughs) (laughs) um, Now, now Ed's dad's father, so Ed's grandfather, apparently was even more devout a Catholic than, than Ed's dad, as he bequeathed his entire life savings to the church when he died, apparently so they could buy a giant stained glass window of the archangel uh who's at saint michael the archangel the guy that drove satan out of heaven um yeah i think michael yeah sounds right so you know little i guess synchronicity or foretelling of what a young ed would become uh driving satan out you know now uh now ed would was raised in a house that he believed was haunted in the book, The Demonologist, colon, The Extraordinary Career of Ed and Lorraine Warren, uh, which this is, I use this book for a little bit of this early research. Um, so, you know, maybe take it with a grain of salt. They did help write this. It's basically their definitive biography written by Jared Brittle, um, who was, I guess, like their longtime ghostwriter. He would author a lot of their novels. And I also got to say, the book is kind of insane. Kind of? <laughs> like, the, I don't know if... Like, have you guys read any of the Warren books by this Jared Biddle guy? Like, not the strongest writer. They also use the term diabolical, like every other word. And it's essentially just a book about how everything is demons. And like any good fortune you might have could possibly be the work of demons. Like, oh, you're about to, you found your dream house. You better watch out because demons could be right around the corner. It's like (laughs) shit like that. It's just like pray and go to church. And that's the message of the book. But the di- I couldn't get over the diabolical, so I've, I've tried to use diabolical as much as I can in this outline. Um, now, in this book, Ed claims that when he was five, he saw an apparition. As his closet door opened, the apparition first appeared as a small dot of light about the size of a firefly. The dot grew larger until it became a full-on humanoid figure. To Ed's surprise, it was his family's landlady. Now, this is notable because she had died the year before. Uh, He also describes her as this mean old lady who hated dogs and kids, and she would just, like, come outside and yell at them whenever she could. Um, Ed recalls, as she appeared in his closet, she was semi-transparent, wearing what looked like some sort of shroud with a frown on her face. And just like that, she vanished. Now, not too long after this, Ed was having dreams of dead people he'd never met, including a nun, little foreshadowing of the films, who would give him messages about his future, telling him that he would help many priests but never become a priest himself. Now, when Ed later described this nun to his father, his father told Ed that this was his aunt who had died years before Ed was born and apparently had some horrific life. He didn't go into details about the book. I mean, who even knows if this is true? Now, from ages 5 to 12, Ed experienced all types of weird phenomenon in his house. He heard knocking, strange sounds, footsteps, saw shadows, heard names called out. Doors seemed to open on their own. Classic ghost shit, you know? Now, Ed's father told him, quote, there's a logical reason for everything that happens. So Ed's father, I guess, was aware that there was something happening in the house. But Ed says that he was never able to give him what that logical reason was. Now, his father also told him to forget whatever he saw and never tell anybody about it. 
but Ed was never able to forget these strange happenings. Now, this all instilled a great fear in a young Ed Warren. Uh, And, you know, I think this is like similar to Rob with his exorcism accounts from the last episode. These greatly like frightened him as a young child. Um, And, you know, much of that, much of this would essentially like shape Ed's future life and career. As, you know, Ed was a kid growing up, these alleged haunt with these alleged hauntings in his house. He also attended Catholic school. Now, he says he didn't like to go to church because he had to dress up. But when the priests and nuns in school spoke about spirits and the devil, he had more reason than anyone to listen. As Ed was trying to figure out what these weird incidents and psychic phenomenon he witnessed in his own home were. So you see here his early Catholic education is where he says he developed, quote, a general metaphysical overview of the world, end quote. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, like we've seen this before, right? I'm thinking this is similar to Aleister Crowley. They were both brought up highly religious. Now, Crowley kind of went the opposite way from Ed. A little bit. With his, uh, with his career there. A <laughs> um, little bit. Yeah, but, you know, it is strikingly similar. You know, Ed's upbringing, his worldview through the lens of religion, this had a profound effect on his life, and it is through this lens of the Catholic faith that Ed would always see the world. It's the same with Crowley. All their ideas, their theories, their beliefs on how the world, spirits, and the afterlife interacted— this would all be shaped by this and fit within this box of religion. Does that make sense? Definitely. It's uh, their worldview is shaped by their their upbringing. If you're raised in the church, you're gonna you're gonna look at the world through that lens. Um, it's interesting that Ed became a, I guess, an exorcist, but not a not a priest, technical Catholic, a priest. Right, but not like a Catholic exorcist, although he was recognized by the Catholic Church, apparently. According to him, yeah. <laughs> which, <laughs> right. Which uh, also... According to unnamed priests that worked with him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> which, yeah, I mean, it is kind of like we said, Crowley went the other way. He kind of went for a whole, oh, I can use this religion to kind of make my own. Whereas Ed was, no, I have to use this religion to help exercise these demons according to him or maybe just to make a lot of money and and make some hollywood movies now um now we'll put a pin in ed's life for the time being because according to the book the demonologist no more than three blocks away ed's future wife was also growing up and experiencing the world in a similar fashion to ed diabolical you could say diabolical yeah, it's super diabolical. Now, Lorraine Rita Morin, uh, she was born on January 31st, 1927. She was born into an Irish family, and similar to Ed, her parents were devout Catholics. Now, Lorraine also began having unusual experiences when she was young. Lorraine recalled her first memorable experiences around age nine. She remembered seeing auras around people, and at first she assumed... Everybody had these same abilities. This was a normal thing. Now, this all changed when she was 12. Now, this is according to the book and Ed. Allegedly, Lorraine possesses what is known as the gift of clairvoyance. So this is the ability to see beyond physical time and place. So at age 12, she recalls it was Arbor Day at her all-girls private school and her 
her classmates had just planted a sapling. As soon as they put the sapling in the ground, Lorraine looked up and saw it as a fully grown tree filled with leaves billowing in the wind. Now, when the nun asked her why she was staring at the sky, Lorraine explained that she was looking up into the tree. The nun sternly asked, are you seeing the future? And she replied, yes, I guess I am. Now, obviously, the nun punished her for this, and she was banished to a retreat home for the weekend where she was not allowed to play or even talk, but just had to pray and repent in silence all weekend. Classic Catholic punishment. Um, you know, so so from here, she basically kept this ability, quote unquote, to herself. That is until years later after she met Ed and they started their careers in the paranormal. Now, again, this is similar to Ed. Her childhood and her religious upbringing, this would play a major role in her career as a medium. Although it is worth noting that Lorraine was a skeptic as far as like ghosts and hauntings from from the jump. Like, I guess she didn't seem to be fully on board at first, according to some accounts, because we'll get into that here in a bit. But I guess, you know, she didn't grow up in a haunted house, so it, she wasn't like coming from the same place as that. She just had these like clairvoyant visions, I guess. Yeah, she just saw a tree, so... Yeah, she's on trees. She saw auras around people. You know, this is this is nothing to scoff at. This is a, this is an ability, a light trance medium ability here. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, it's like uh, if you go down the street and pay the good old psychic, those are considered mediums, right? Same thing. Yeah, yeah. She well, those are more, I guess, like scrying, like with a crystal ball, like tarot card type shit. I think. I don't know. I mean, it's all in the same realm of of. Uh, Possible grifters, or possible, or grounded in reality. So you know, let's not let's not throw some shade just yet. So, so Ed and Lorraine Warren eventually meet. Um, They would go on to meet each other in 1944 when they were both about 16 years old. Now, Ed was working as an usher at the Colonial Theater in Bridgeport, Connecticut, where Lorraine was a regular attendee. And she recalled how spiffy Ed looked with his sharply creased pants and perfectly quaffed hair. And she even described that he smelled like Noxima, which I guess is a type of lotion. Um, so I guess Ed worked as a lifeguard during the day. And after his, ship, after his shift, he would apply ample amounts of Noxima cream to soothe his skin. Now, I'm thinking 16-year-old Usher in the movie theater could be using the cream for something else. Yeah. <laughs> Quite possibly. Beating off those demons, dude. I mean, I mean, I don't I'm not speaking ill of the dead or anything here, but I mean 16-year-old boy, you really think he's Yeah, I would just put the cream all over my body. I was a lifeguard. I just I just my skin had to be clear. Yeah, that's that's crazy. So yeah, she said he smelled like this lotion. Now Now one night Lorraine attended a movie with her two friends. Allegedly, it was a James Cagney film. I'm not sure which one. Now, after the movie... Oh! (laughs) What do you hear? What do you say? Uh, Yeah, now, after the movie, Ed happily offered to walk the three girls home. Uh, You know, and there's this whole story about them walking home. 
he says, you know, I'm, I'll buy you guys a Coke. I'll buy everybody Cokes. He's like big time in them, you know, five cent Cokes on me as big time Ed. I got the money over here. So he's buying them Cokes and, and the two girls, you know, they get their Cokes for five cents. But Lorraine is like, no, no, no. I want the fucking ice cream soda, Ed. Now that was 10 cents. But Ed was like, you know, Lorraine, for you. I'll get you the fucking ice cream soda. So he gets, he gets her the most expensive beverage. Now, the other two girls, they make it home. Lorraine's house was the furthest. Ed continues to walk with her before being turned away because I guess Lorraine, maybe growing up in a highly religious household, she left alone. So she didn't want to be seen coming home with a strange boy. I guess maybe her dad would have beat her up or something. Um, now, Lorraine later recalled that when Ed ran across the street, she didn't see the slender young man of 16, but she physically saw Ed as a grown man, a man that she would marry. Now, upon returning home, she wrote in her diary that night, quote, Today I met the man I am going to marry. So obviously they begin a relationship. And soon after in 1945, when Ed was just 17 years old, he enlisted in the U.S. Navy and was off to fight in the Great War. That is World War II. Now, Ed had been deployed for a total of four months when his ship he was on, which was the Spring Hill, collided with an oil tanker in the North Atlantic. Now, a fire erupted, resulting in the order to abandon ship. Now, once Ed jumped into the water, he immediately realized he was fucked. He's in ice cold water, and to make things worse, flames begin surrounding Ed and his shipmates. Now, as we said, Ed had been a lifeguard in his youth, so he was a great swimmer. Now, he noticed uh, a fellow sailor struggling to stay afloat. He swims over, does some like lifeguard techniques, I guess, you know, like helps him stay afloat. He's swimming with the guy, saving this guy's life. So Ed's swimming with his shipmate, but there's nowhere to go. Flames are everywhere. They're basically surrounded by fire at this point. Now, Ed, being a good Catholic, began to pray as he said, quote, Holy Mary, Mother of God, please, please save me. I don't want to die. Not here. Not now. Now, according to Ed, it was as if the Mother of God was truly listening. As he saw directly in front of him, the flames began to part. Now, through the opening, a lifeboat with two sailors aboard, navigated its way through, and Ed's prayers were answered as he and his shipmate were saved. Now, in total, 20 troops perished that night in the icy waters of the North Atlantic, and Ed was one of 69 survivors. Nice. (laughs) So, you know, pour one out for those troops. You know, we support the troops here. Um, Now, Ed was sent back home on a 30-day survivor's leave before he had to return to war. And it was during this break that Ed and Lorraine were married. Hey, you almost died, so just go ahead and take 30 days off, right, bud? <laughs> yeah, I mean, hey, dude, this is World War II. This is no... <laughs> take, a little, take a little break, but uh, in 30 days, we're calling your ass back to yeah, the Atlantic. They give him a short break. They say, well, you know, we need the troops. We can't have all 69 of you guys out on leave. You know, we got to get you back here. Um Now, so the war ends, USA wins, hooray, hooray. Um, Now, Ed gets out of the Navy, and now he and Lorraine have to figure out how they're going to make a living. Now, Lorraine recalled they both had skills as landscape artists, and each did have a desire to paint, 
So she had assumed early on that they'd just be artists. Now, by 1951, the couple had also welcomed a daughter named Judy. Uh, and I couldn't actually find a definitive birthday for her. Like some accounts were saying 1951, like their own website. And then others were saying she was born like the first time Ed was back from the war. So hmm. I have no idea. I mean, and also I think there is a little bit of like, what do you call it? Misinformation maybe with uh, Judy because, you know, in the movies they're portrayed as like this classic nuclear family you know, 1950s, very nice. It's it's the dad, the mom, the daughter. They're living together. She's in the house. Apparently, this was not the case. Like, she mainly grew up with her grandmother her whole life, Lorraine's mom, because they were always away traveling, looking up ghost shit, doing their Hollywood spiel. And, uh, yeah, I think that she would just mainly grew up with her grandmother, she said. I was just about to say, they sound like awesome parents. Like, oh, yep, Judy, just uh, just go live with your grandma for the rest of your life. We're just going to go off and start hunting ghosts. <laughs> we'll be painting houses. Yeah, maybe not parents of the year here. Um, and we'll also get into that a bit later. So it's 1951. Ed, with his talent for painting, enrolled in Perry Art School. Um, also, dates might be off on this because I believe he had also maybe taken some art classes before the war as well. And allegedly, like, dropped out after two years. But, yeah, he eventually drops out of school. And the couple set up would set up pop-up stands throughout the tourist areas of Massachusetts, Vermont, Rhode Island, and coastal Connecticut in order to sell Ed's paintings. Um, now, his paintings were mostly haunted houses throughout Connecticut, among other ghostly works. And I assume maybe... He all they had to have done some type of like tourist maybe caricature work if they're setting up shop on these like tourist sites, you know, like you know they're the, on the guy, boardwalk just yeah. fucking painting characters. Because how are you just gonna sell ghosts in haunted houses on the boardwalk? That's not sustainable. I mean, have you ever seen the guy's paintings? It's no wonder he dropped out of school. Okay, all right, all right. So you're okay, Rob. As our as our art student in our major, our graphic design major in the field, you're saying his art is no good. Who who's a better artist? I mean, it's okay, but I'm I'm not gonna be like buying his artwork off the street. All right, who's a better landscape artist? Would you say Adolf Hitler or Ed Warren? Definitely. I mean, it pains me to say this, but Hitler. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yo, my vote's for Bob Ross. Honestly, <laughs> Bob Ross schools them both. Well, okay, yeah, you're you're that's like comparing a fucking D League <laughs> basketball player to Michael Jordan. <laughs> I mean, if I gotta say it, Van Gogh was probably the better artist. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean Michelangelo maybe a little bit better than Ed. <laughs> Just slightly, you know. Okay, so so you know, they're fucking they're doing their painting thing, and apparently this is how they broke into the world of the paranormal. Now, let me know how you guys feel about this, because to me, it seems like borderline creepy. Um, so basically... Borderline? Borderline? <laughs> well, well, come on. So basically, we know Ed. He's into ghosts and shit from a young age. He grew up in a haunted house. He has a near-death experience in the war. He's into painting creepy stuff. Now, again, keep in mind, Lorraine... She's a skeptic at the start of all this. She didn't grow up in a haunted house like Ed, so she has no clue about any of this like haunted stuff, ghosts. She's just seeing people's auras, 
being a fucking medium. Now, apparently, Ed would research houses that were believed to be haunted. Mostly, I assume, in New England. Lots of haunts around there, as we saw from our Melonheads episode. Um, So he's looking this shit up in Fate Magazine or local newspapers. So they find a house. They then drive to the house. And Ed basically just sets up shop in front of the house, sets up an easel in front of the house, and starts sketching a picture of the house. Now, they said sometimes they would see residents looking out their windows like, you know, what the fuck are these idiots doing? What are these guys up to? Um, now, Ed Ed would then give the sketch to Lorraine and tell her, hey, go knock on the door, give them the sketch, and tell them we like your house and are intrigued by it. So basically, Lorraine goes up, she strikes up a conversation, sometimes offering the homeowners the drawing for information about the house. Basically, their entire goal was to get into the house, talk to people about the hauntings. So they use their sketches and I guess Lorraine's personality as a ticket into the house. And it is by this process that their investigative career began. Now, Lorraine also said... If the story was compelling enough, they'd actually paint the house and later sell the piece at an art show. Now, they spent about five years traveling around the U.S. painting and investigating haunted houses. And I guess like Ed would also read extensively about hauntings and the paranormal in general. So when he would visit these places and get firsthand accounts, he would like compare notes to the books he read and make make note of what articles got wrong or, or what was different. Um You know, so kind of interesting. Um, So I don't know. I mean, I guess this is actually kind of cool. You know, like, yes, they are. They are out to make a profit with the whole like painting aspect. But that's not too crazy because you have to make a living. But they are at least Ed is genuinely doing like firsthand boots on the ground type research into the paranormal. You know, I don't think there was many people out there doing this. Uh, this is probably pretty fucking fringe, especially at this time. So kind of cool, even if, I don't know, the way they were doing it is a bit creepy. Like, what do you guys think? I remember from the interview that I was mentioning earlier, uh, they talked about the first house they went to. Do you get, did you guys ever uh, read about that? It was like a like a pirate witch house or something. <laughs> I, did, I did not come across that. I would have put yeah, that in w- here for sure. Yeah, I mean, it was like, just, just kind of a quick recap from what I remember. It was like this pirate back in like the 1700s or something. He fell in love with this woman and he built this like mansion like next to the ocean or something like that. And she lived in it until she died. Now, what pirate, not a good pirate if he's living in a house. Right? I mean, I guess he was <laughs> off doing his pirate thing, you know, like doing the shivvy me timbers or whatever. But um Anyway, so the, I forget. I think this was in Connecticut or Rhode Island. It was somewhere in the uh, in New England because that's kind of that was where they they hung out. But okay, um, yeah. So there was like a legend of of this carriage. Like the the ghost of the lady would just show up to like in a carriage around this time every Halloween, and a bunch of the residents in the town like reported seeing them and stuff. And and I guess Ed. Ed and Lorraine went and painted the place, and they, they said that they saw her or something. Like, she, like she showed up in the carriage and walked past them and into the house or something like that. But okay, oh, I'm sure that it did. Yeah, 
pretty wild. Now, see, that's the that's the Conjuring movie I want to see with uh, Johnny Depp as the pirate living in this mansion. This lady's in a carriage. That is a we could pitch this to Warner Brothers, guys. Yeah, it's exactly. the new movie. It's called A Pirate in Connecticut. <laughs> yeah, <yes>. <laughs> <laughs> a Pirate in Connecticut. Um, there you go. It's a crossover film, Pirates of the Caribbean and uh, Conjuring Meat. Or like Haunting in Connecticut and Pirates of the Caribbean. The Pirates of Connecticut. Well, yeah, I think that's where <laughs> that's where he was going for with the title. Um, <laughs> now, all right, so by 1952, they began what is described on their website as one of the most important ventures of their lives, and that was founding the New England Society for Psychic Research, NESPER. As how you would say the acronym, right? Yes. Okay. Now this is now run by their son-in-law, uh, Tony Serpa. I think is his name. Um, Tony. Tony. Yeah, Tony runs this, uh, and it is cited as one of the oldest ghost hunting organizations in America. Now, again, this is where the timeline is a bit off, as is the case with a lot of stuff on their website. Um, like their own daughter's birthday, like we talked about. So they start driving around in 51, and by 52, they already founded Nesper, but continued to drive around doing research for five years. If that's the case, I guess Lorraine wasn't skeptical for that long if one year into it, they start up Nesper. Um, but then, you know, the de- the demonologist cites the Warrens' ghost hunting period as the late 40s, early 50s, so... You got to think maybe if the war ends in 45, they're doing research, popping around from like 46 to 51, then they start up Nesper. I mean, I couldn't really find like a definitive read on the dates of this period, but I mean, I guess that one makes the most sense. Yeah, de- definitely. I don't know. So th- so he they're saying that they were starting to do this like post-World War II, so 46 to 51. Yeah, that's what the demonologist says. But on their website, it lists up like 51 is when they start driving around doing the paintings and then they found a Nesper in 52. So, I mean, I don't know. I think their website is a bit off. Tony, maybe get in contact with me. I'll help you write up some stuff for the web. Um, and, and also in the book, <laughs> the book cites like, so they're driving around in this period. And like we said, Lorraine was like skeptical at first, but I guess like, the continuous, like they would visit all these haunted houses and the continuous input of psychic data during their ghost hunting period helped to like develop Lorraine's clairvoyant abilities. Says they helped to develop them significantly in this period. So she's just getting fucking charged up by these ghosts. They're just like her special meter, like Tony Hawk is just going like fully up while they're doing this ghost hunting period. (laughs) How much money do you think they're hauling in driving around to random people's houses and showing up on their doorstep with a sketch of their house? Yeah, so we'll, I think we were getting into this Doesn't a bit. Doesn't really seem like a viable source of income. If right, right. Like in, I think in the documentary that's on HBO, like Devil's Road, it's called, weren't they saying that like they, if Ed sold like five paintings in a weekend, it was like a good day? Yeah. And I don't know, like how sustainable is that? They're making... I think they're making like barely enough to scrape by. Like again, as we'll see later, I think they're kind of doing this just to kind of bolster up their career and to like add some credibility to their names. Yeah, guys, I'm just going to quit my job and go start painting haunted houses, I think. (laughs) Yeah, because didn't you say- Door to door. Well, you know, maybe be it might be a little bit more expensive in this day and age. You know, you got to think this is back in the 50s. Um, 
you know, they could scrape together change and go fucking drive across the country um, with the I'll gas. Buy Cokes for buy. everyone. <laughs> yeah, he's buying Cokes for everyone. Um, but also, weren't you saying they were like basically on like the borderline of bankruptcy before they got like one of the book deals? Maybe it was Amityville yeah. Horror or something. Okay, so again, they're probably not make. They're probably not doing that well for themselves. Well, well, what when I was talking about that, I was saying that the uh, the people that were that contacted them about their house being haunted, they were on the verge of foreclosure. And then once they got their book deal with the Warrens, okay, okay, got it. They're okay, like so not the Warrens. So I, was like, I thought, yeah, I thought so you I was meant like, the Warrens. Oh, okay, they're just like thinking of, oh, how how can we save our house? Yeah, but I also think the Warrens were probably not doing that well for themselves at this travel point. This is like, basically, they found a Nesper and they used their experience as traveling investigators to start build up their reputation as experts in the paranormal field. Now, allegedly, from here, the story goes that they would wait for people to come to them with hauntings, which... Already, that's false because they've they've been going around for years painting houses and trying to get in. But okay, you know, let's let's say okay, maybe they're now they're bona fide investigators. They're waiting people to come to them. They've still built up a reputation of at least being interested in the paranormal. So maybe just by word of mouth, I guess people would say, you know, like they'd call them up, hey Ed. There's something spooky going on at my house. Can you check it out? Hey Ed, look, I got a demon in my house. You know, <laughs> he's making a lot of noises. I don't, I don't know, I don't know what's going on here. Okay, can you can, can you come over? I'll give you, I'll, I'll give you some mac and cheese or something. Ed, hey Ed, can you come over and draw a picture of my freaking house? I'm hearing footsteps every night. Hey Ed, there's something strange in the neighborhood. Uh, hey Ed, there's something. And I'm calling you. <laughs> hey Ed, there's something weird and it don't look good. <laughs> you know, like. Who are you going to call when you've got a haunted house? They're basically the Ghostbusters, dude. It, but also, you got to think, this is like 56, 57. So this is way before Ghostbusters even came out. But as we know from our Ghostbusters episode, the cartoon Lonely Ghosts, animated short by Disney, was released in 1937, which features Mickey, Donald Duck, and Goofy as members of the Ajax Ghost Exterminators. So maybe this is where Ed was getting his ideas. You know, he's like, hey, fucking Mickey's got a right idea here. He's fucking start up a ghost exterminating place. Lorraine. Lorraine. <laughs> this is perfect. You know, he's watching cartoons with Judy while they're home, and he's like, we got to start doing some ghost exterminating. Well, is he? Because apparently Judy wasn't around that much. Okay. Well, maybe I'm, I'm sure they saw her from time to time growing up. Now, now. Ed's just getting fucked up watching Mickey Mouse by himself. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> also, where were people finding their information back then? Like, That's what I'm saying. I think newspaper. Like, how, I mean, maybe they I took out an ad. They could have taken out an ad and said, "Yeah, that's true." Ed, well, Warren, didn't he say he was reading fucking like spooky magazines and shit? That's where Ed was finding it. Billy's talking about where did people call them? Like, yeah, maybe they had their number in the same magazines. I think it was mostly at first just kind of word of mouth in the Connecticut area. Like, hey, you know, these people are into paranormal shit. If someone's, if you believe in that type of stuff, maybe call them up. Similar to like the tarot and psychic readers, you know? 
Yeah, I guess that explains why their house was directly next to the cemetery. Right, right. Probably, you know, they're like, hey, we got to. They're just approaching people at funerals. (laughs) Yeah, they may be. And I, I also do think they worked with a good amount of like catholic priests you know maybe ed was like he would go around to these churches and be like hey you know i'm a, i'm a little bit of i'm not a priest but i'm a little bit of a demonologist so if anybody's got a fucking demon problem send them my way you know and i'll i'll cut you in on the book deal you know something like that <laughs> <laughs> right and, and actually not cut them into the book deal <laughs> right right yeah so you know by this time their business model is that they don't charge the families to get rid of the haunt or whatever it is they had to do. Basically, if they have to travel, which wouldn't that be all the time? Maybe, I guess, out of state. They'd bill you for their travel and lodging. But for them to actually determine what was going on and get rid of it, that's free 99 So, you know, that sounds like a good deal, right? Yeah, until the book deal comes. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so, and I did spend, I spent a lot of time trying to find out like if they charge for their services and if so, how much. And I, I couldn't find anything about them charging. So I'm thinking, you know, how the fuck did they make their money? They're like Rob said, selling paintings of haunted houses is only sustainable for so long. So how the fuck are they doing this for a living? Why didn't they charge? Well, they didn't charge because they made their money via lectures book deals, and life rights. And with the life rights, they could also license for film, TV, and more book deals, and probably other stuff too. But those are the main ones and the important ones, which we'll get into later, because this definitely seems to have paid off for them. So, you know, the Warrens, they're making a name for themselves. They begin giving lectures because, according to them, there seemed to be a growing interest in the occult in the late 60s. I mean, you know, look at the shit that's going on. You got the counterculture, New Age is starting to pop up, Wicca, the Satanic Bible comes out in 1969 with like all the Levian Satanism. This is all huge. All this stuff was starting to gain a foothold, especially on college campuses. So this makes sense. You know, they, they also said that many of the people they saw that were affected by dark phenomenon were college students. So, you know, it was it was the Warrens' hope that through their lectures, they might discourage people from even exploring the occult in the first place. So, they really can't stress their religious stuff enough. You know, they're basically out to spread the word of the Catholic Church, even if it is in a roundabout way. Hey, stay away from demons, but if one's in your house, let us know so we can write a fucking book about it. <laughs> right, right. I mean, that's kind of... <laughs> Spot on. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... Let's get into some of their own like theories, because basically, like we said, they're both hella Catholic. Um, They seem to think that basically everything is the work of demons, like from the slightest inconvenience to even something positive happened to you. Like we said, like finding your own dream house. It could actually be demons or dare I say diabolical forces tricking you in in order to like make their move and possess you. Now, of course, the only way to get rid of this is by going to church, having positive thoughts, a lot of um, law of attraction type shit. That was also starting to like really be popular at the time. Now, Ed describes three stages of demonic activity, infestation, oppression, and possession. Um, Then he also goes on to expand this to five stages, which is permission, 
infestation, oppression, possession, and finally, death. Super fucking metal. So, you know, Ed is the demon guy. If the thing is demonic or some other type of diabolical force, Ed's the guy. You know, he he brags nonstop in the book about how he's the only non-Catholic exorcist recognized by the church. But then they also say in later interviews that they would never attempt an exorcism because that's only to be performed by a priest. So conflicting there, but those are kind of some of Ed's theories, his 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 life's work. Now, Lorraine, on the other hand, she deals with dead spirits, more benevolent forces. Oh, you know, you got a dead lady walking around, a simple ghost, you know, like a residual haunting or maybe like a stone tape theory type thing. That's Lorraine's wheelhouse. Sounds like Nick could use, uh, Nick's family could use Lorraine, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, maybe what, I don't know, dude, you said you saw her, Nick's ghost standing over you. That might be, Ed might be like, Billy, what dealing with a fucking demon over here? But then if we're going off stone tape theory, maybe Nick's haunting is like, isn't stone tape theory like basically the idea that if spirits and ghosts are like energy or like built up of energy this theory is that a place with like any type of crazy negative energy like from a death or a murder it kind of acts as like a recording so you're just seeing the ghost is like watching a vhs or something yeah it's like uh if something terrible happens there's like an imprint in that area that just stays around in like the fabric of space-time that just is like there forever, right? Yeah, right. Um, okay, so yeah, that's that's Lorraine's um, that's Lorraine's bread and butter there. Now, now she gets into like clairvoyant and medium type shit in the book, and I don't know if this is her personal theory, but she says surrounding the body of every living being is a bioluminescent glow caused by a natural discharge of energy from the body. So clairvoyants can see and read the human aura which appears in three layers, reflecting the physical, emotional, and spiritual status of a person. So are we tracking here on their theories and everything? Yeah, sounds interesting. So Ed's like the demon guy. So right. he, he said, well, how do, you, how, do you, how do they discern the difference, though? That's kind of my thing. Do we get into that later? Um, I mean, I, I assume that they're talking about this shit and Lorraine's like, Hey Ed, I can see these auras and shit. And he's like, all right, Lorraine, this is perfect. You're going to be the, uh, you're going to be the clairvoyant, the medium. You're going to, you're going to help with like simple type hauntings. Now me being as a devout Catholic as I am, if it's a demon, that's the man's job. I'm going to take that on. Yeah. He's going to, I mean, I'm assuming it went something like that. Look, Lorraine, it ain't a dead lady. It's a demon. Okay. I know these things. Yeah. I mean, it's also like nine times out of 10, it's a fucking demon. (laughs) <laughs> so is this just Ed like building this up? I mean, I don't know how, I guess just his general interest in like Catholicism and ghosts, he just kind of got into demonology because it's not even like, this is also, I don't know, This we can get into this a little bit later, but that also kind of points more to the direction of maybe they are fraudulent because if he was so interested and devout into all this shit, why wouldn't he have gone to school for like theology? Why wouldn't he have gotten a degree in theology really got into like actually studying this shit? Like he's just a self-proclaimed demonologist. So it's like, he's just like, yeah, I read a couple books on demons. I'm a fucking demonologist. 
You know, like I could say I'm a demonologist, self-proclaimed. Well, if you believe his word, it's because the nun told him he was never going to be a priest. So he said, oh, I don't even need to do this shit. I could just do it by myself. Yeah, but that's insane. Truth. Also, why would she? Uh, I don't know if you did the research, but the guy's fucking insane. (laughs) Okay. All right. All right. We're getting, uh, I think we're getting ahead of ourselves, but, uh, so that's, you know, that's a bit of a background on them, how they got their start and some of their theories. Now, now for the good stuff, let's get into some of the more notable cases and some not so that they've worked. Um, I'll try to keep these in chronological order as best as possible, but again, conflicting dates on some of these. So first up, Annabelle Dahl. Uh, and keep in mind, this one is this full tale is from the Nesper site. Um, so this is either 1968 or 1970, conflicting dates on the Nesper site. Uh, Tony, as we said, also not a very strong writer. Um, now the Warrens, they get one of their first major cases, and this one has obviously become extremely popular thanks to the Conjuring franchise, or I guess the Annabelle trilogy. Um, also, real doll, way less creepy. Uh, you know, even the doll gets a wildly different casting than the than the true life doll. But I guess the uh, the real doll did stay in a glass case in the Warrens' home with a placard reading "Positively, do not open." still there allegedly (laughs) yeah yeah so so the basic story also there's tons of different versions of this story so like i said i went with mostly the version on the nesper site so a student nurse named donna in hartford connecticut she's about to graduate nursing school and was given an antique raggedy ann doll as a gift from her mother Uh, they also have a picture on the website of some little girl with the doll So, you know, what the fuck is that? Also, what mom is buying a grown-ass woman a Raggedy Ann doll as a nursing school graduation gift? That reminds me of uh, that interview with Ed. I keep going back to the interview, but it's hilarious. (laughs) Because at one point he talks about Annabelle. He's like, oh, you know, girls just love their dolls. You know, even 25, 30-year-old women love their dolls. They go to sleep with their dolls. He knows a lot about little girls. <laughs> yeah, I do. I mean, I guess I get it. Like, but I think like older, um, older women are more into like the porcelain, like crazy dolls, not like a fucking raggedy end. doll. this is a doll for like a little kid, right? Yeah, but I guess, you know, some girls, they just, they never grow up kind of like Peter Pan. Okay. Yeah. They love their dolls now. So Donna lived in a tiny apartment with her roommate, Angie. Now, just like in the films, it starts off with small stuff. You know, Donna came home and the doll would be in her bedroom when she says, I left it on the couch. Or small movements like the doll would be positioned positioned differently, head would be turned, classic creepy shit. Now, this starts to happen more and more. One day, she was sitting at the breakfast nook with the doll and suddenly the doll's arms moved. Okay, also, I'm thinking Donna is a bit weird. If she's eating breakfast with the fucking Raggedy Ann doll, she had a roommate. She's taking this doll everywhere as a grown woman eating breakfast with it? Hanging out in the breakfast nook, you know? (laughs) Like, that's a bit weird, no? It is a little weird. It's like, look, I really want to have breakfast with you, but uh, good old Raggedy. 
She said she's, she's taking she's taking priority. Yeah. <laughs> okay, now. Also, I like how they have a single room apartment, but they got a breakfast nook in there. Well, I don't think it was a single room. It just says tiny apartment okay. on the website. And the website also refers to it as a house. So who the fuck knows what's right? Like I said, Tony, lots of contradictions. Hit me up to do some corrections on your website. Now, about a month into this weird shit with the doll, Donna and Angie begin to find messages on parchment paper that read things like, quote, Help us. Help you. Now, the handwriting looked as if it was written by a child. Uh, The creepy thing they say here is at the time, Donna had never kept parchment paper in the apartment. So where the fuck did that even come from? Also, how is that the creepiest part of this story? Is the mystery parchment paper? Not, not that the doll is writing physical messages in the handwriting of a child. They're more worried about where the fucking parchment paper come from. <laughs> hey, did you write this note? Well, where the fuck did the paper come from? <laughs> right, like, like, oh, look, the doll moved. But wait, we have, we all all of a sudden we got parchment paper over here. <laughs> it's like, did that doll just turn her head? Where the, who the fuck got parchment paper? Uh, now, now, now one day, so one day Donna is looking at the doll and notices what looked like blood drops on the back of its hands and chest. No idea where this came from. Now desperate for help at this point, Donna and Angie contact a medium. And of course, a seance was held during which they were introduced to the spirit of Annabelle Higgins. Now, the medium relayed the story of Annabelle, who was a young girl that once lived on the property before the apartments were built. She was only seven years old when her lifeless body was found in the field upon which the apartment complex now stands. Now, the spirit allegedly said that she felt comforted with Donna and Angie and wanted to stay with them and be loved, I guess in doll form. Now, obviously, Donna gave her permission to live in the doll and stay with them. But of course, this was a huge mistake. Now, they also have Lou's account. So Lou was friends with Donna and Angie, and he was staying with them. Now, again, I don't know if this is Angie's boyfriend or what, but again, we got a tiny apartment and they have a third roommate in the mix. How small could this apartment have been? And maybe it is Angie's boyfriend and he's living in her room. I don't know. They don't go into that detail. Maybe it doesn't matter. Now, Lou hated the doll. And on several occasions, he told Donna that it was evil and to get rid of it. But she said, you know, fuck off. We're keeping the doll, Lou. I like the doll. I got it as a gift. I'm keeping the fucking doll. And I'm going to eat breakfast with it every day at the Nook. Now, one night, (laughs) Lou awoke from a deep sleep in a panic. He had been having recurring nightmares, but this time something seemed different. It was as though he was awake, but couldn't move. Billy, this is your biggest fear, sleep paralysis. Uh, Yep, sounds pretty creepy. (laughs) Yeah, now looking down to his feet, he saw, now looking down, he saw Annabelle and the doll began to slowly glide up his leg, moving over his chest and then stopped. Within seconds, the doll was strangling him. Paralyzed and gasping for breath, Lou blacked out. 
Now, Lou awoke the next morning, but couldn't shake that this was just a dream. Now, again, it goes into his the rest of his account, but that's just an insane ending spot for that story. He wasn't like, yo, this doll was choking me out. Yeah, dude. And also, how the hell does a doll physically possess the strength to strangle a grown man? Yeah, especially a raggedy end doll. She doesn't even have fingers. It's just like mittens. Exactly. <laughs> so he's just feeling like... Also, the doll gliding up his leg is pretty insane. So this doll is gliding just... Gliding up l- his leg? Levitating like, up to... it, Like floating, I guess. It's not running. It said gliding up his leg. Yeah, that's 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 nuts. Um, but maybe I'm thinking if this is like some type of possession shit, maybe the doll was just over his neck and he felt like actual hand strangling him. I mean, who the fuck knows? You know, I don't know how demons work. We'll have to get Ed's expert advice now. Now, so then it goes from there right into Lou had another terrifying experience with Annabelle when Lou and Angie were prepping for a road trip. They were alone in the apartment and suddenly they heard rustling sounds coming from Donna's room. Now, Lou, thinking that something, someone broke in, he starts making his way to the bedroom. Now, he waited for the noises to stop before going in and turning on the light. The room was empty, and he noticed Annabelle tossed on the floor in the corner. Lou searched the room, but nothing was out of place. As he got close to the doll, he got the feeling that somebody was behind him, spinning around quickly before realizing there was no one there. Then he felt a hot burning sensation on his chest and clutched it in pain as he was dropped to his knees, cut and bleeding. Upon opening his shirt, there on his chest was what looked to be seven distinct claw marks, three vertically and four horizontally. Now the scratches healed almost immediately, half gone the next day and fully gone by a day or two. So after this, they're thinking, what the fuck? We need an expert. They contact an Episcopal priest named Father Hagen. He contacted a higher authority in the church, Father Cook, who immediately contacted the Warrens. Now, Ed and Lorraine Warren took interest in the case right away after speaking with Donna, Angie, and Lou and came to the immediate conclusion that the doll itself was not in fact possessed but manipulated by an inhumane, diabolical spirit or presence. Because I guess spirits, they said, do not possess inanimate objects like houses or toys. They possess people. However, an inhuman spirit can attach itself to a place, an object, and that's what occurred in the Annabelle case. Now, in this case, an inhuman demonic spirit was essentially in the infestation stage of the phenomenon. It began by moving the doll around the apartment to arouse curiosity in hopes that they would give it recognition. Then, obviously, the demon knows that these idiots are going to make the predictable mistake of bringing in a medium to communicate with it. So now communicating through the medium, it preyed on the girl's emotions by pretending to be a harmless, innocent, lost girl. Then it got permission from Donna to haunt the apartment. This is classic demon behavior, right? Classic. I mean, that's a lot of steps for this for this demon to take in order to uh, haunt this apartment. A lot of rules it has to follow. A lot of rules with Catholicism, as we'll find out. Now, now of course, the Warren said, good thing you called us. If these experiences lasted another two to three more weeks, the spirit would have completely possessed, if not killed, 
all or one of the occupants of the apartment. Mm. So, you know, after the initial investigation, the Warrens advised them to have an exorcism, an exorcism blessing read by Father Cook to cleanse the apartment. The Episcopal Blessing of the Home, a seven-page document that is distinctly positive in nature, with the emphasis directed towards filling the home with the power of the positive and God. Now, at Donna's request, the Warrens also took the doll along with them when they left. Upon leaving, Ed placed the doll in the back seat, and he agreed he would not take the interstate in the event that the inhuman spirit still resided in the doll. Of course, Ed's suspicions were all but correct, and in no time the Warrens felt themselves as victims of a vicious hatred. At each dangerous curve, the car swerved, stalled at every corner, causing power steering and brakes to fail repeatedly. The car verged on collision multiple times. Now Ed reached into the back seat and in his black bag took out a vial of holy water and doused the doll making the sign of a cross and the disturbances immediately stopped and the Warrens were able to arrive home safely. From there, the Warrens had a special case built for Annabelle inside the occult museum where she resides to this day and apparently had haunted a priest who like mocked her or something through the case and he almost got in a crash on his way home. And then even there was this young couple um, that was on a motorcycle and they were laughing, joking about how stupid the doll was and the guy like banged on the case and they got into a head on collision with a tree on the way home killing the man but the uh the female survived his girlfriend and was was talking about how they were laughing and joking about the doll right when the motorcycle crashed so just to piggyback off of that um i don't know if you (laughs) saw it in any of the videos that you watched but tony claims that he distinctly remembers driving down the same road and passing the guy on the motorcycle with his girlfriend right before the crash happened. And then when he found out the story, he knew that he was like meant to be with their daughter. Okay. Yeah. I had not seen that, which is, (laughs) I was like, that's pretty, uh, it's pretty dark. Right. Right. And that's pretty insane. Also, you know, I mean, I tried to like fact check some of this stuff, Couldn't find a couple crashed on the motorcycle anywhere around near the Warrens residence, which obviously would have been somewhere reported. Also, looked up Annabelle Higgins to see if there's any like old timey cases of a seven year old girl dying in a field. Uh, Couldn't find that anywhere. Now, again, the Annabelle Higgins could have been like older, like maybe they didn't have a record of it if it's from like the fucking 1700s or some shit. But the motorcycle crash. I mean, that's fucking crazy to not have no reports of that. Allegedly, the uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but uh, one of the documentaries I watched, they talked to the priest that said like... That he almost his, crashed? That No, he did crash his car, but he wasn't harmed, but he totaled oh, his right. car. Oh, right. Yeah, totaled his car. Okay. Because it like, uh, wild card, cut the brakes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, Ed warns, quote, you did not challenge evil. That no man is more powerful than Satan. Um, now, okay. So, like I said, I'm looking up into the legitimacy of this case. And there's also, like, you know, haunted dolls. That's a fucking staple. You know, Chucky. Um, fucking, what else we got? Robert the doll. Have you guys heard of that? 
That's like the main major one. Yep. He's he's uh down here in uh Key West. Down my way. Yeah, yeah, he's down. Yeah. So I uh, should go visit him. So yeah, I was looking this up. Apparently around the same time, 1970s, a strikingly similar story emerged, later becoming known as Robert the Doll. Basically, this doll was given to Robert Eugene Otto of Key West, Florida in 1906 by a Caribbean woman skilled in black magic or by his aunt who got her from this lady. And the doll is currently on exhibit in a museum in Key West, Fort East Martello Museum and Gardens. Um, The doll also, it's like the same thing, allegedly moved itself, tried killing people, exhibited disturbing behavior. Um, Now, some theorize, why is it that two stories of demonic dolls emerge in 1970? Well, many suspect that it may have something to do with the Twilight Twilight Zone episode Living Doll, which aired in 1963. So in this episode, this is centered around a woman named Annabelle who gives her daughter a doll that comes to life and terrorizes the family. So, I mean, do we think that's a coincidence or what? Hmm. Sounds a little coincidental to me. <laughs> Not really. I <laughs> Well, also in that Twilight Zone episode, the dad hates the doll and keeps saying that it's evil and tries to like throw it away and like burn it and stuff. Correct? And doesn't it? Yeah. And it like kills him on the stairs or some shit, like makes him trip. Yeah. The episode ends with it, like pushing him down the stairs basically. Right. Right. Okay. So yeah, I mean, because you know, they, they kept it in the house too long. They didn't call it. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, of course. Now this is also, this is like the killer toy trope. Like I was talking about Chucky. This is a common horror trope. Um, now, you can trace this back to films like Dead of Night in 1945 and The Great Gabo, 1929. Now, these primarily feature like evil ventriloquist dummies um, because that was like big at the time, like ventriloquism, which is creepy in itself. Like those dolls have a creepy nature to them. But even like I was reading into one... Um, you know that guy who's like he was probably like the most famous ventriloquist guy. His name was Edgar Bergen. Yeah, I've heard of that guy. And he had like, yeah, dude, this guy was a fucking maniac. Apparently, like his daughter wrote a book talking about how he had an entire room made in his house for his ventriloquist dummy, and it would like eat at the table with them, and he treated it like a son. And this guy made millions of dollars. I I don't know millions, maybe maybe more from doing ventriloquism. He was like the most famous ventriloquist act. This dude left nothing to his daughter, but in his will left 10 grand to the fucking dummy. What a dummy. Yeah. The guy was obviously, uh, didn't have his priorities, right? Yeah. Now, obviously, like, like I said, these earlier movies feature like evil ventriloquists or ventriloquists, like taking over people and, uh, you know, killer dolls eventually develop in the 60s throughout the 80s. And obviously, Child's Play comes out in 88 being like the most popular Great um, year. version of that. Yeah. Also, I think James Wan must be like fascinated with dolls because like one of his first horror movies was Dead Silence. You remember that one? Great fucking movie. Yeah, Mary I love Shaw. that movie. And then he makes the whole Annabelle series. That guy definitely has to be into like creepy dolls, right? Maybe. Okay. Maybe he's uh, Edgar Bergen. 
in the flesh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they, Dude, you know, I was thinking about it though. And like, yes, although the Raggedy Andal isn't as creepy as like a ventriloquist dummy or like the Annabelle from the movies, I think that it still would be extremely terrifying to see like a fucking raggedy and all like you wake up in the middle of the night and it's like running around your room or something like that would be pretty fucking creepy. yeah yeah obviously i mean yeah people some people say that would be more terrifying because like the doll in they went a little over the top in the annabelle like the doll looks too creepy like what mom is gonna buy that and be like this looks fucking sick for my young daughter like it looks insane it looks like a fucking demon whereas like the raggedy and doll might be more creepy because it look it's like a fucking evil Elmo doll running around, you know? That's more terrifying, I think. Elmo did? That would be creepy too. Right. Like something that looks so like innocent and childish being creepy is like I feel like more creepy than Annabelle, who looks like a fucking demon. Dude, that just reminded me. You remember when we first watched Child's Play and you had that fucking cookie monster doll? And it scared the shit out yep, of it. And I rolled over on it in the middle of the night and it went off and made a sound and you and PJ were fucking scared shitless. Yeah, I remember that. So are you, dude. <laughs> I know. I mean, classic, classic doll shit, dude. Um, I mean, dolls are creepy, man. Um, so let's get, let's get into this next case. This is the Perrin family. Um, now, okay. First case pulled just from Nesper's site. This one got a little bit from the Nesper site and then mostly articles and newspapers, um, other sources, not the Warrens, you know, now following the Annabelle case comes the haunting of the Perrin family investigated by the Warrens in 1971. Now this would go on to inspire the 2013 film, the conjuring, which Lorraine served as a consultant on, so situated in Harrisville, Rhode Island, the 14-room farmhouse was bought by the Perrin family in 1971. Uh, they were like a working-class family. Dad was like a truck driver, I believe. Five daughters. Obviously, he gets a deal on this house, fucking loves it. They move in. Now, similar to the last case, small things start at first, like objects going missing, moving around, small piles of dirt were reported being just like placed around the kitchen, um, scraping sounds in the kitchen, classic stereotypical haunting shit. Now, then the daughters started talking about all these different spirits that would visit them at night. One particularly diabolical spirit appeared to one of the daughters as a woman with a bent neck, supposedly from being hanged, and this spirit wanted to possess their mother and kill all the children. Sounds like haunted, the haunting of Hill, Hill House got uh, some inspiration from this, right? Uh, probably. I mean, I, I didn't... Uh... The, bent, the bent neck lady. Yeah, the bent neck lady. Oh, bent neck. Okay, yeah, maybe. So, so the mom does some research into the house, and she finds out uh, some lady named Bathsheba Sherman... Uh, used to live and work on the land and, of course, was accused of killing her children and possibly worshiping Satan. Uh, I guess I was reading more into this tale. Her husband caught her murdering their infant with a sewing needle while swearing allegiance to Satan. And I guess she was never brought to trial, but I guess a few other kids like supposedly died in her care 
And again, never brought to trial. Any whom she hung herself and cursed the land so that any inhabitants would eventually suffer a painful, untimely death. And I guess until the parents bought it, the house had been in the same family for eight generations, all of whom had untimely deaths, murder, suicide, drowning, that type of shit. I was watching, I believe it was like, is it The Devil's Road? Is that the name of that? Yeah, the Warren documentary. Um, Documentary? Yeah. I think it was in that one. It could have been a different one. I watched like too many documentaries on these fuckers. Okay. But there was a, when it was on this particular case, there's, it showed a gravestone of her. Is that, do you, do you recall if that was on the property? Um, yes, I believe. And I mean, I have that a little bit later. We'll get right into that. Okay. Um, yeah. So from, that's so, pretty fucking creepy in itself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you'll see. I mean, so from here, uh, they get in touch with the Warrens, uh, who made multiple trips to investigate at one point in 1974, Lorraine conducted a seance to attempt to contact the spirits that were possessing the family. Now, during this seance, Carolyn Perrin, the mother became possessed. Now, Andrea, the daughter, claims to have been secretly watching the seance and described in her book, quote, I thought I was going to pass out. My mother began to speak a language not of this world in a voice not of her own. Her chair levitated and she was thrown across the room. Now, after the seance and rightfully worried about his wife's mental stability, Roger Perrin kicked the Warrens out, told him, get the hell off my land. Uh, now, and, now Andrea says the family continued to live in the house due to financial hardships until they were able to move in 1980, at which point the spirits were the spirits were silenced and the haunting ceased. Um, which, you know, in a lot of these, uh, you know, movies with haunted houses and cases like this, it's like the people just move right out like, yeah, fucking right. You just bought a house and you're just going to fucking move out? Yeah, fucking right, dude. You, especially if this guy's got five kids. He's a truck driver. He's not just going to be like, oh, yeah, you saw a ghost. Let's move to another house. Um, I would. <laughs> okay, okay. And how about, do you guys notice also in the movies, like The Conjuring 1 and 2, like the haunted houses always, the interiors look like there's just shit smeared everywhere on the walls? Yeah, dude, they got five kids. But how are they not? They're just like, oh, dude, like in The Conjuring 2, there's just a massive fucking stain behind that like rocking chair. How is the <sighs> mom like, oh, yeah, this looks great. Like, we can't or put like some the, wallpaper uh, over that. Even in like Amityville Horror too. I feel like that one's not as bad. Like Conjuring 1, it looks like pure shit has been just power washed all over the interior. I think that's just to, you know, set the ambiance, the tone, you know? It, it looks creepy and up the creepy factor. Yeah. Yeah. But again, are they making it look too creepy like the Annabelle doll? Like, wouldn't it be more creepy if it was just a normal looking house? Yeah. They got to go over the top, though. So every every time they're filming, the whole like setting is creepy. Okay. Know? Okay. All right. Now. All right, Rob. Now I get you- it. I mean, yeah, it, it's definitely over the top, but I get it. They're trying to dramatize it for the movie aspect of it. All right. All right. Now. Now, obviously, this one has come under scrutiny because the film drops in 2013. Now, like we said, it's Hollywood. Of course, it's sensationalized. It's exaggerated, dramatized. I get 
that. Now I start poking around. Uh, you know, I want to see what's true, what's not. Um, and it looks like Bathsheba Sherman was a real woman who died in Rhode Island in 1885. Now, since the film, the once sleepy little cemetery where she lies has become a pilgrimage site drawing in horror fans and ghost hunters from all over the country and has even become the target of vandals. Uh, And also, the whole witch story, Satan worshiping cursed land. It's fiction. They made it up. It's fake. Not real. Not this time. Our writers made this one up. Completely bullshit. (laughs) Yeah, fact or fiction, this one would be the fiction. So the current owner of the house, Norma Sutcliffe, uh, she researched the history of her home and discovered many factual errors presented as truth by the Perrin family and the Warrens and subsequently the filmmakers behind The Conjuring. Now, she also sued Warner Brothers due to an influx of trespassers following the film's release. So, Rob, I am assuming that, yes, Bathsheba's headstone was on the property. I don't know if it's like right next to the house, like it's a farmhouse, so it could be just on some plot of land. But, you know, I also I also saw an interview with this lady, like I think it was like a local news channel or something. And she was just like. None of this stuff is real. Stop coming to my house. Like, stop showing up here. They made this shit up. But it's like, I mean, how, like, outside of that little town, like, no one, no one knows that or is going to see it. They just see the movie and they're like, oh, let's go check this out, you know? Yeah. But then also, like, I saw something that the house is, they do like a fucking Halloween tour. Like, they let people come and look around at Halloween. So, what the fuck is that? I, I, my thought on that, because I saw that too, is like, I think initially she was pissed and then like people wouldn't stop coming. So she's like, fuck might it. I as might well as well make some money. If people are going to, if people are going to keep showing up uninvited, I might as well fucking charge their ass. Okay. All right. 50 bucks at the door. You can walk around. So I find a couple sources. Um, one, this article in the Boston Globe by Amanda Milkovitz uh, talks about all the vandals at the headstone. And this seems to be sourced and corroborated by the work of Jamie Rubio and her book, Stories of the Forgotten, colon, infamous, famous, and unremembered. And I got to say, this is the type of shit I live to find. You know, this is good journalism this lady is doing. Definitely go buy the book. Check out her blog, Dreaming Casually, and support this type of research because um, she also set up like a GoFundMe with a local historical society to get the headstone replaced for Bathsheba. Guess who uh, didn't donate to that at all? Warner Brothers, Warner Brothers, the Warrens, any of the any of the Conjuring uh, people. Um Now, in her book, she notes that the posthumous accusations made against Bathsheba Sherman are all lies. She was never accused of any wrongdoing whatsoever in her lifetime. There is absolutely no records to substantiate any of the claims made by the Warrens or the parents. The story about her being a witch, being related to a witch from Salem, having killed a child, being a murderer... All of these are tales originating in the 1970s. Now, the real Bathsheba Sherman was born March 10th, 1812 to Ephraim Thayer and Hannah Taft. Uh, 
She married Judson. Hell yeah. She married Judson Sherman when she was 32. They had four children. Only one of them lived to adulthood, as it wasn't unusual in those days for children to die very young. Now, after Judson died, Bathsheba married a farmer from Providence. And Bathsheba eventually died on May 25th, 1885, from a sudden attack of paralysis at the age of 72, according to her obituary. Mm. Now, a Baptist minister officiated her funeral services, and the obituary noted that she was, quote, The last member of the Thea family, once numerous and well-known in this town. Now, Rubio writes that, quote, Bathsheba lived and died without any mark against her name. Her obituary was that of a decent Christian woman. The real crime is that someone decided to make up horrific lies about Bathsheba in the 1970s, and it's gone on too long. End quote. Now, you know, you got books, social media, YouTube videos by so-called paranormal investigators continuing to feed this false and outright slanderous legend of the Conjuring Witch. Now, I mean, I gotta say, like, this is actually pretty fucked up. I mean, couldn't we have at least changed the name or used someone not real? Well, I mean, when your name's Bathsheba, I'm pretty sure that's like a demon from the Bible or something. Sounds pretty demonic and witch-like, if you ask me. <laughs> from the Bible. A demon from the Bible. I mean, is it is definitely a creepy name, but um, I'm assuming that since... Maybe she actually did live on the land. They just decided to roll with it. I don't know. Still pretty fucked up either way. Like Ed's just walking by and was like, Bathsheba, huh? Sounds like a pretty creepy fucking Heard she killed her kids with a fucking sewing needle over here. (laughs) Hey, yeah. Like, uh, I mean, that's just crazy that they would like just completely slander this woman. Um, Now... Now, in in her book, Jamie uh, Rubio, the one who kind of found all this information, she goes on to get into the whole history of how the Kenyan family owned the property before the parents bought it in 71. Now, before that, the Kenyan's ancestors, the Butterworths, and even earlier, the Arnolds had owned it since the 1700s. Now, she also gets into how this sort of modern myth developed around the old Arnold estate and the deaths of some of the Arnold family members none of whom died on the actual property. I think there was like one guy who was found dead in a shed on the property. He was like a drunk that wandered in there and died of exposure in the cold. Um, Mm. Yeah. Now this mixed with other strange myths in the town, like the story of Laura Sherman, who is buried in her family cemetery on Buck Hill, which I guess is some like it's in the same town, but I think it's like miles away. Local teenagers have told the legend for decades that if you circle her grave three times on a full moon, she will appear. So honestly, you know, this is this reminded me of our Melonheads episode, you know, with a bit of just kind of bare bones research. It's easy to see how these myths take form and kind of develop over the years, like you say, like a game of telephone. You know, bits and pieces are added until one day. A Hollywood movie is made slandering uh, the good name of uh, an old Christian relative. You know? (laughs) (laughs) Messed up. Yeah. Shame on you, Warner Brothers. Um, Shame on you. Yeah. Now, you know, while they're very, I mean, the Perrin family home, like it's a 300-year-old farmhouse. 
So, you know, while there may have been paranormal activity inside the home, a substantial amount of information contradicts the Warren's findings. So, you know, maybe take that one with a massive grain of salt. Still a great movie, though. Oh, yeah. First Conjuring, dude. It's up there. Top horror movies. Um, Oh, yeah. Definitely in the top five. Oh, yeah. And that house is way creepier than the uh, actual one. All right. Yeah. So let's get into the let's move along. This is the uh, we'll call this the West Point haunting um, 1972. So this is probably a lesser known Warren case. But, you know, I got to throw this in here as I attended a service academy myself. You know, this one was interesting to me. Um, So the haunting at West Point. Um, So the Warrens are scheduled to give a lecture to the cadets in October of 1972. Now they get a call asking if they can also do some investigating into the Thayer home, which is the superintendent's house on campus, as they were allegedly having, quote unquote, security issues. Now there is a picture of the Thayer home, very old, very allegedly haunted house. Now, upon arriving at the superintendent's home, I uh, also, they don't mention him by name, but I looked up the superintendent during 1972 was William Allen Knowlton. So they meet him and his wife, and he describes a number of incidents that have gone on in the house that cannot be explained. In the basement, there's a private study always kept locked and secure, but no matter how many times the bunk in there is made up, it's always found ripped apart later. Now, upstairs, ghosts have been reported for years. Classic stuff, noises, tappings, poltergeist activity. But the problem that needed solving was that personal belongings and other important articles are regularly found missing. Not stolen, he emphasized, but missing temporarily. Wallets have been stolen, pockets have been picked, money and personal mementos have been taken from high-ranking generals and other top military brass, only to be found later and laid out on a bed or dresser in another room. So basically, Lorraine is like, I got this. This is a run-of-the-mill haunting. Let me walk around. I'll feel this place out. She goes all around, points out, oh, John F. Kennedy used to stay here, right? Um, They're like, yeah, that's right. She describes the presence of MacArthur's mother, who used to look out a window of some room and talk to MacArthur all the time. Um, she was basically just giving descriptions of all the spirits and energy present in the home. Now, the general wrote them down in a memo to the librarian requesting uh, that, they, that they search the West Point archives and find evidence that supports what Lorraine Warren is talking about. Now, she described a woman uh, who could be a ghost named Molly, who was an Irish cook who served... Sylvanius Thayer. Um, she, Hell of a name. Yeah. She <laughs> is also known to rumple bed linens and knock wine bottles to the floor in the kitchen. Um, so, you know, she cracked the case with that one. She finds a room with a good amount of energy to lay down in in order to go into her trance state. She says this is what she needs to do to, like, see the spirits or whatever. So Lorraine closed her eyes and says, quote, I see a black man approaching. He's wearing a dark uniform with no braid or decoration. This man is with us now. This man is overtaken with a sense of fear, guilt, and a lack of acceptance. He feels very sorry for something. Now Lorraine stopped. 
Her body was tense and her arms straight out beside her. She said, quote, He's speaking to me now. He tells me that he is being accused of murder. His cell is in the basement, but the army has exonerated him of that murder. Ex-exonerated him. Oh, ex-exonerated. Sorry about that. (laughs) He is very, very sorry, and he cannot hold his sorrow any longer. This is why he has been taking wallets. He wants the army to know his sorrow. Now he tells her his name is Greer. And then Lorraine says, quote, Mr. Greer, you must go to the light. It is time for you to surrender yourself and begin again. Everyone must do this. Focus on the light and step toward it. Go to your friends and family. Go home to the light, Mr. Greer. Focus on the light and be drawn toward it. Now Lorraine suddenly snapped awake. Um, So they go to leave and the general is like, hey, no black guy ever served here until the turn of the century. So what the fuck is up with this? We got to look into this. Uh, Now, sometime later, the Warrens are phoned and sure enough, it's West Point letting them know it was discovered that a black man, a porter by the name of Greer, had served at the point. Assigned to the Thayer Mansion in the early 19th century, he'd been accused of a murder, but the army exonerated him of it. But somehow, his records were out of whack, and so they got it all straightened out. Now, in the librarian's response to the superintendent's request, remember he wrote down the memo and and was going to have her research all this shit? Um, Archivists were able to find documented evidence of several African-American men who had come through West Point with the name of Greer. Now, one of the descriptions that potentially best fits that of the ghost Lorraine encountered was Lawrence Greer, a Buffalo soldier who turned out to be a criminal. Uh, General prisoner Lawrence Greer, formerly a private in Troop C, 9th Cavalry, escaped from confinement at Fort Leavenworth in June of 1931 and was apprehended the following April near Albany, New York. He was brought to West Point, court-martialed for his escape and subsequent desertion, found guilty. He was sentenced to two and a half years of hard labor. However, the sentence was disapproved by... Uh, command of Major General Connor because the prisoner was judged insane at the time of his trial. Uh, Now, they said they have no record of what happened to Private Greer after these events. That's crazy. Yeah, now... um, Now, Ed says, on such occasions as the haunting at West Point, when phenomenon simply won't go away, the most direct route is to acknowledge something is there, if only to stop it from happening. So, a lot to unpack here, a lot going on. A couple questions I have, and let me know what you guys think. One, how is stealing a wallet and personal things from people in the house going to show that you're sorry? And two, do you think a ghost really cares if his fucking records are out of whack? Like they were like, oh, it, it looks like he was cleared of this murder, but the, the records were missing. So we got him straightened out and then the ghost just goes away. I mean, what the fuck are we thinking with this case with this haunting? Well, it is kind of crazy that she said it was a guy named Greer and there ended up being a guy named Greer. I don't right. know. That's a little, it's a little interesting. Okay, okay. Um, so you're buying it. You're believing the tale? I, I'm not necessarily believing the tale. I mean, she could have done a little bit of research or something. Right. And like not disclose that or and then 
right, acted yeah. like it was some clairvoyant experience or something. But Rob, it looked like you were about to say something. I don't know how hard to do uh, research on a place was back then, but it seems like you could like dig back far enough and find that information out probably pretty easy. Yeah, I mean, I guess especially if it's your like primary job. But also, I was gonna say, I think the the whole like moving objects around. I feel like that's not really uncommon. I think it's like a kind of a way for the ghost to get you to like acknowledge their presence. It's like, oh, if I like fuck with stuff that's important to you, then then you'll start to like realize something's going on here kind of thing, you know? Okay. So you're buying Ed's five stages, you know, acceptance and then uh, infestation possession. Maybe well, this, this is, demon. this, this isn't a demon. I'm saying, <laughs> okay. I'm saying like the ghost is realizing like, Oh, if I like start fucking around with stuff that's important to this guy, maybe he'll pay attention to me and like acknowledge me and I can tell my story kind of thing. All right. Okay, I get it, I get it. So, you know, next time you need to make an apology, just go ahead and steal someone's wallet. Move it around. Not the same thing. (laughs) Maybe something crazy happened to that guy, though. Maybe he cared more about just his uh, records being messed up. Maybe, like, he got called insane and then just fucking, they just murked him or something. Yeah, I mean, the records one is from the demonologist, but the uh, I found the him declared insane was in another article from like army.gov or whatever. So maybe he is insane. And he's like, if I steal this guy's wallet, it'll show I'm sorry. Cause I'm insane. <laughs> right. That's like insane logic, isn't it? Well, I also think that back in the day, like when you just didn't want to deal with someone, you're just like, Oh, well this person's fucking insane. So we can write them off. Right. Okay. All right. Well, you know, had to throw that one in there. I had never heard of it before. So moving along, um, this is the Bridgeport Poltergeist about 1974. So apparently this is the first case they were on that gained a lot of, I guess, media attention or maybe just media attention in general. Um, this was in the Warren's hometown of Bridgeport, Connecticut, 1974. So this is more than 20 years after Ed and Lorraine had started their work investigating the paranormal. Um, so the Bridgeport Poltergeist case, as it became known, is believed to be one of the most documented cases of paranormal activity. Also, I feel like they say that about every case. Like, isn't every Conjuring movie ends with like, this was one of the most documented cases of paranormal activity in the world. Yeah. They got to excite you, you know? <laughs> okay. All right. So draw you in. So the Warrens uh, f- family friend and psychic Mary Parsaria uh, contacted them and informed the Warrens of paranormal events that Bridgeport locals Jerry and Laura Gooden were experiencing in their house on Lindley Street. Um, the Warrens arrived to find the house swarmed with firefighters, police, as well as neighbors. Um, this was the first case where the Warrens experienced such a large media presence as they tried to conduct their work. Now, among the first police officers on the scene reported, quote, We observed things lift off the shelf and fall to the ground. We observed other furniture move. Now, Ed asked him, you had actually seen this yourself? To which he said, quote, 
Some of this we saw, others happened while our backs were turned, within a split second. Another officer said, quote, I seen the little girl sitting in a reclining chair and she threw, she flew back in it. I seen it about three times. I seen a picture fall off the wall. <laughs> now, a priest, Father William Charbonneau, uh, said he had seen a black shadow that was not in any solid form. Billy? The mass, <laughs> the mass then vanished. Now, Ed himself witnessed a plastic crucifix on the wall burst into pieces. Uh, the couple who lived in the house, Jerry and Laura Gooden, had revealed that they had both experienced a lot of strange phenomena in the house. The night before the media circus, Jerry said that something attacked them as they returned from buying groceries. The groceries were suddenly thrown around with dishes flying everywhere. They hoped it was a one-time incident and move on. But Jerry also recalled how he saw the table lift off the ground and suddenly all three recliner chairs opening and closing at the same time. Now, city engineers were also baffled with the phenomenon. One engineer said they wanted to know if it was gas or something with the electrical service. Uh, you know, because a lot of times when my gas is turned up too high, my table just starts like lifting off the ground and my groceries fly everywhere. Has that ever happened? Yeah, my recliner chair just starts moving around <laughs> weird. Yeah, also, <laughs> who has three recliner chairs in one room? That's a lot. Guy loves a good lazy boy. Yeah, these maybe lazy family. Um, so one of the um, one of the city engineers said, "Quote." So we went down there. We looked in the hallway, and we see the refrigerator come across the kitchen floor from right side to the left. As soon as that happened, two policemen said, "You got to leave now." <laughs> so. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of, I guess, reports and these are coming from policemen, firemen, city engineers, I guess. Um, eventually, so you know, it's real. Yeah. Now law enforcement would eventually write off the case as a hoax altogether done by the Gooden's uh, daughter, Marsha. Um, and also, you know, I, you got to think 1974. So this is right after, um, what did we talk about on our Ouija episode? 1973, the exorcist comes out you know and i think the exorcist put that fear in a lot of people's mind of like possessions like the catholic church also um think about the catholic church at this time this is pre-2003 so the catholic <laughs> church hasn't been exposed yet for diddling kids so i feel like a lot of people did have like an immense amount of um of trust and faith in the the catholic church like they did a lot of good right Mm-hmm. Ed Warren hadn't been exposed for it either. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I don't know. What are you guys thinking about that Bridgeport case? Sounds like a bunch of BS. Are we going to cover the Enfield case? Yeah, well? yeah, I've got that in here. We can kind of briefly get into it because the Warrens weren't super involved, but I do have that later. It just kind of reminded me of that to like where all this creepy stuff is happening and like officials get called in and then... right. It's just like, oh, the daughters are just fucking around. And yeah, actually, I was reading that. I think um, I was reading into this case. And at first I thought this was the infield case because it sounds a lot like Conjuring 2. But then you find out that's a different case. And I apparently like um, I guess we'll get into this later with the films, too. But I don't think Warner Brothers has the life rights to a lot of Warren cases. So that's why they wrote the infield one for number two and had them more involved than they actually were. But I mean, we'll get into that. We're getting a little out of order. Let's get into next. Um, 
Amityville Horror 1976. So this is by far the most notorious case the Warrens were involved in. Now, like I mentioned earlier, we did a full episode here, so we're not going to spend too much time on it in this episode, um, but it is worth mentioning, you know. I think we all are familiar with the ba- the basic story, you know, the DeFeo family is murdered in one night as they slept by Ronald Jr., um, and then the Lutz family moves in, they start experiencing crazy demonic shit, they leave after 28 days. Um, now, this story became the basis for the best-selling book, which was then turned into a hit movie series, The Amityville Horror. And now there's probably, I think there's actually like hundreds of Amityville spinoffs. Like if you search Amityville on Tubi or Pluto or any of those free apps, you'd get just hundreds and hundreds of knockoffs, including my personal favorite, Amityville Karen. Uh, (laughs) This is Amityville Karen. This is a real movie. I put this on last night just to see how bad it is. And man, I mean, if you guys want to like laugh for like an hour and a half uh, at a horrible movie, check this one out. Um, Does she want to talk to the manager? (laughs) Pretty much. Yeah. Now, now this case, you know, this really helped catapult the Warrens into the paranormal superstars they became. Um, even though they aren't even included in some of the book or movie versions, but you know, being the only two official paranormal investigators involved in the case early on definitely helped to kind of like cement their legacy as the case grew in popularity over the years. Um, now, even the gentleman who wrote the book, Jay Anson, he became like insanely rich off of the book i like he could have retired off just that book alone and um you know later with the movie income and all that he made like millions upon millions of dollars now i guess one of the major things with this case so may of 1975 five months after the lutz family had left the home ed and lorraine investigated the home with a news crew to document their findings Now, during this investigation, an infrared time-lapse camera picked up the now-famous image known as the Demonic Boy Photograph. It depicted a young boy with glowing eyes standing at the bottom of the staircase. And apparently there were no reported children in the house at the time this was taken. Um, Now, here's a picture of it there. Uh, The Warrens concluded that the house was inhabited by an evil supernatural entity entity due to its violent history that that's a creepy picture yeah but to uh, me it's either they staged a little kid or right that's uh probably a ghost of a child there's no other explanation oh well, a lot of people say it was this guy um i forget it. his last name was bartz and he was like one of the paranormal investigators that was helping him and he's wearing like the exact same shirt as the little kid is wearing um, so a lot of people say that could be him in the photo. Um, so, I mean, I don't know, you know, take that one with a grain of salt. I think Amityville for the most part has been pretty thoroughly debunked as far as hauntings go. Um, you know, like they definitely beat off the dead horse with that one. Um, I, I like really the most crazy fucked up part of Amityville to me is the mass murder committed by Ronald Jr. DeFeo, where he killed his father, mother, two brothers, two sisters, all as they slept, you know? 
definitely messed up. Yeah, like that's the most crazy part to me. I mean, he, like, and that's I think why it became so famous because at the center of this story is a fucking mass family murder. Um, now, some aspects of Ed and Lorraine's account of this case were portrayed in the opening scenes of the 2016 film The Conjuring 2. And speaking of The Conjuring 2, that brings us to another, um, I guess, popular case that the Warrens were briefly involved in, and that is, as Robbie was saying, the Enfield poltergeist. Now, this became the main plot of The Conjuring 2, and this was a claim of paranormal activity at 284 Green Street in Brimsdown, Enfield, London, England, between 1977 and 1979. So, starting in August 1977, basically right after the Warrens investigated the Amityville haunting, um, this case pops up and mostly involves the 11-year-old daughter, Janet Hodgson. Now, she was allegedly tormented and possessed by a poltergeist. Uh, the evil spirit engaged in classic activity, knocking, strange voices, growling, levitation, throwing objects across the room. Uh, this story also became a media sensation that led to numerous investigations of Janet, her siblings, and their home. Now, over the years, the haunting's authenticity has come into question partly because much of the paranormal activity occurred when only Peggy and Janet were present. Now, audio recordings and photographs were taken during the two years of investigations, and they've also been heavily scrutinized. Even Janet herself admitted to fabricating a small portion of events that took place in the home. She estimated that 2% of the activity was faked, according to her. And I guess she said they did this to see if the paranormal investigators would catch on, which she said they always did. Um, now there's even photographs of the real Janet Hodgson levitating. Uh, these were taken by the big quotations. Yeah. These were taken by daily mirror photographer, Graham Morris after the family contacted the press and, you know, daily mirror is a UK tabloid. So, people take these with a grain of salt i mean it looks like she's just jumping off the bed right yeah yeah it definitely looks like she's jumping and they took the picture midair or something right right and there's stuff like this stuff with her fake saying admitting to faking some of it but i like there is still a good amount of people out there that like say there's a lot of legitimacy to this case i mean we could do a whole other episode on this case just because there's so much shit gathered like there's all the actual like you can listen to the actual recordings of her talking in the uh bill wilkins voice or whatever and a lot of people say you know she herself was like a fan of practicing ventriloquism so she's just like knows how to manipulate her voice very well I mean, there's a shitload of stuff you can find from both sides. It is an intriguing haunting nonetheless, but as for the Warrens' part in the investigation, they played an extremely minor role in the case, um, despite the events being depicted in The Conjuring 2. Apparently, the Warrens were initially denied access to the house and ultimately turned away after only staying there for one day, uh, even though they cite it as one of their most famous cases. Now, Guy Leon uh, Playfair 
Uh, he was one of the original paranormal investigators on the Enfield case, and he came forward prior to the movie's release and said that the Warrens had showed up uninvited before leaving after a day. Uh, he also said that Ed Warren told him he could make him a lot of money off the case. So, you know, I mean, that's kind of like this guy saying Ed just showed up and was like, hey, you guys got a haunting? You want to make some money? Here we go. Uh, you know, I mean, showing up uninvited, that's pretty crazy when they are saying earlier they wait for people to come to them. Just decided to fucking hop across the pond and just show up at this guy's doorstep. Right, right. I mean, to me, I feel like they would only do that if they were like, hey, we just got off Amityville. This was a massive hit for us. Look at this case I'm seeing in England. Like, this was a heavily covered case in the British tabloids, so... I'm sure that they caught wind of this. If he's Ed's already looking up haunted houses in Fate magazine, he's probably got a fucking haunted magazine subscription. You know, he's subscribing to Hauntings Weekly, and he's like, Lorraine, we got to go get involved in this case. Um, now, the real Janet Hodgson, she believes that it was a priest's 1978 visit to the family's Enfield home in North London that caused the haunting to calm down, not the Warrens. Um, so, you know, had to throw that one in there just because of the conjuring too. But as we see, they were very, as you can see, they're full of shit. Right. And very, uh, very briefly involved in that case. Now, now following that, we got the case of Arnie Cheyenne Johnson. This was in 1981. Now, again, I don't want to get too in the weeds on this case either, because one, it seems to be another debunked case. And two, Netflix actually just dropped a great documentary on the entire case from both sides. So go check out The Devil on Trial, which is now streaming. Um, but, you know, the basic cliff note. So 1981, we get the case. And this was also the basis for The Conjuring 3, The Devil Made Me Do It. The real story starts in 1981, case of Arnie Cheyenne Johnson. Now, this is another case like Amityville that involves an actual murder. Um, as Arnie Johnson was arrested and tried for killing his landlord, Alan Bono, in 1981. Uh, but it is different from Amityville in that instead of an insanity plea, Arnie's defense tried to use demonic possession as a legitimate argument in a court of law for his murder trial. Now, Johnson's defense argued that he was not in control of his actions due to demonic possession. So before Alan Bono was murdered, Arnie's fiance, Debbie Glatzel, uh, her 11-year-old brother, David, had allegedly been showing signs of demonic possession. And so the Glatzels called upon the Warrens to help. Now, Ed and Lorraine brought in priests and performed three lower exorcisms. Ed noted that at one point, there were 43 demons inside David. Uh, now, <laughs> now, the priests involved, they denied any exorcisms had actually transpired in the Glatzel home. Uh, Anywhom, the story goes that David started to improve. Now, had either of you guys seen the documentary or heard the actual recordings of this case? No. I don't yeah, I, wa I watched the documentary. Like, if you look up the recordings, like, it does sound like the kid's just being a, a fucking kid. He's, like, calling his mom a douchebag and laughing. And they're saying that this is, like, the demon speaking. 
And he's like, you're a fucking douchebag. <laughs> he's just laughing at his mom. But what's hilarious is it's like 43 demons. It's very specific. Right. It's like, <laughs> like 43. You... Not 44. Like, not 42. How, how are you gauging that, Ed? Do you have some tor- sort of like demon radar? Apparently. Maybe the priests were filling them in or something. Ed looks like we got 43 demons inside this kid. Um, so, so, <laughs> so the kid starts to improve. Now, Arnie Johnson, however, was not so lucky. Uh, he apparently did the classic, this is the classic cinema move, the take me instead, demon, take me instead, possess me instead. This is a class, this is right from The Exorcist. And I guess it worked because a few of the alleged demons exercised from David's body jumped right into Arnie's. Now, he reportedly began growling and hissing, as well as slipping into on and off trances for a period of months before eventually stabbing Alan Bono to death with a five-inch pocket knife, apparently while they had been drinking. Now, Arnie can't remember doing anything. One minute, he says he was standing in front of the guy. The next thing he remembers, he was in custody. He was overtaken by something. So this became known as the devil made me do it plea. And it was ultimately unsuccessful. Um, but, you know, side note, it was the first such claim in U.S. history. I guess there had been other like demonic possession claims, but those were overseas. Um, this was the first case to use that as an excuse in U.S. court. Now, the judge was having none of that. He said, quote, I'm not going to allow the defense of demon possession, period, end quote. Um, he wanted to use more down-to-earth evidence, and the jury eventually convicted Johnson of first-degree manslaughter. Um, and, you know, they do actually make a pretty f- uh, good point in the documentary. Like, the judge was basically like, hey, this isn't something we can prove. We're not using any of the demon shit. I'm not going to have any of that mumbo jumbo in my courtroom. Uh, But then again, like they swear everybody in on the Bible. So what's up with that? They believe in that as like a legitimacy. Oh, we got to swear you in on the Bible. You're not going to tell a lie, but they're not believing in demons. What the hell? Yeah. I don't know how much sense that makes, but apparently Judge Robert Callahan you know, he's not into the demon thing. Yeah, yeah. Maybe he's an atheist. Not uh, in this courtroom. <laughs> yeah. Now, in twenty in 2007, Carl Glatzel, uh, David's older brother, attempted to sue Lorraine Warren and Gerald Brittle, who were the authors of The Devil in Connecticut, for unspec- unspecified damages. As part of his lawsuit, Glatzel claims his family was manipulated by the Warrens and that they and Brittle concocted a phony story about demons in an attempt to get rich and famous at their expense. Now, I was doing more research. As far as I could find, it looks like this case was eventually dismissed. Um, so I don't know if they settled out of court or what. And it is actually pretty fucked up. In the documentary, the oldest brother who filed this lawsuit, who seems to be the most like level-headed of the family, claims that Lorraine came to their mom basically had her sign away the life rights to the case of the case to the Warrens and the Warrens gave them four grand while the Warrens reportedly made 80 grand off the book. Wow. Low blow. So, you know, <laughs> typical. Well, 
in the documentary, they had like phone recordings of Lorraine talking to the mom. Yeah. I mean, it is pretty wild. And you got to think like, obviously a struggling family is going to see the four grand, not knowing anything about like life rights and a book deal and all these lawyer documents and be like, oh yeah, we'll take the four grand. Meanwhile, the Warrens are fucking on planes, meeting with Hollywood agents, making fucking 80 grand off this book. Breaking in the dough, dude. Yeah. So, you know, another case we could kind of maybe take with a grain of salt now. Next up, we got the Smurl haunting. This is in 1986. Um, So from 1974 to 1987, the Smurls claimed that they were at the mercy of ghosts. Jack and Janet Smurl, along with their young daughters and Jack's parents, all moved into a duplex on Chase Street in West Pittson, Pennsylvania. And that was when the eerie activity began. Now, at first, as is always the case, small things, (laughs) tools went missing, reappearing later, old stains seeped through fresh coats of paint on the walls. Uh, Then it escalated as kitchen appliances would catch fire even when they were unplugged and awful odors sometimes overwhelmed the entire house only to disperse moments later. Now, things were going okay for the first couple years they moved in, uh, but before long, the Smurls were struggling financially. Jack's mother, Mary, had a heart attack, so she was in a weakened condition. Uh, Both Mary and Janet claimed to have heard voices that sounded like one another. Janet thought she heard her mother-in-law calling her name, while Mary thought she heard Janet and Jack in an argument cursing at one another, um, yelling all kinds of awful profanities, she said. Now, ominous black masses would also form and float through the home. Uh, Janet said she was visited in the night by a malevolent force that molested her as she slept. One night, laying in bed, Janet and Jack heard someone whispering. A young woman, it seemed. Now, when he turned his face to his wife, he watched the shadowy figure run up her leg. Now, this entity also allegedly threw the family dog into the wall, which, you know, hate that. It shook their mattress, pushed one of their daughters down a flight of stairs, also caused a light fixture to fall from the ceiling, cutting one of the daughters on impact. Now, Janet said she was picked up by an invisible presence dangling some six feet in the air and then tossed across the room. Jack also claimed a succubus entered the living room and raped him while he was watching a baseball game on TV. Wow. Really? (laughs) Yeah, and there's also actually, like, there's a made-for-TV movie about this, and I was watching it to kind of, like, get more into this case. That scene is in the movie, and it's actually kind of hilarious. Like, this fucking chick just this guy's watching baseball this chick just pushes him to the ground jumps on him she's got her teeth are all fucked up and then she starts like raping him i guess and it's like flashing to a big fat guy who looks like tim dylan with a wig on back to the girl back to the guy back to the girl and the the guy's just like laying there pulling his hair out um you know pretty crazy now and at this point you know i assume that jack and janet they're like the couple from christmas vacation 
You know, he's he's like, obviously something had to throw the dog against the wall. Something had to rape me while watching baseball. And she's like, why is the carpet all stained, Jack? I don't know, Janet. <laughs> you know, like, they're thinking, what the fuck is going on? Even the neighbors reported hearing screams from the house while the family was out. So they get in contact with the Warrens. Now, Lorraine Warren, using her skills as a clairvoyant, conduct, concluded that the Smurls shared their home with four spirits, a harmless elderly woman, a young and possibly violent girl, a man who suffered and died in the home, and of course, a demon that used all three of the other spirits to destroy the Smurl family. Um, so, you know, they got everything here. They got demons. They got ghosts. This is a perfect case for Ed and Lorraine Warren. Now, the Warrens contacted the Catholic Church. They described the hauntings happening at the Smurl household. And allegedly, Cardinal Ratzinger, who later became known as Pope Benedict XVI, assigned an exorcist from the Catholic Church who went to the house and performed the ritual of exorcism, the Ritual Romano. Now, again, I was looking up, couldn't find any documented proof of this. I couldn't find any. Uh, I was even trying to look up the ritual Romano as an exorcism and couldn't find too much into that. Um, and you never will. Right, right. Now, in 1986, the Smurls told the press they were tr tired of the constant media bombardment. However, within a few months, they authored, along with Ed and Lorraine Warren, and a Scranton newspaper writer, Robert Curran, a paperback book titled The Haunted. Now, in 1991, a two-hour made-for-TV movie titled The Haunted was released by 20th Century Fox, also written by Curran, The Warrens, and The Smurls. Um, and this was the movie I was talking about. Check it out. It's on YouTube. Also pretty bad. Almost as bad as Amityville Karen. Um... Yeah, not a great movie. Also, is this like a little bit like the South Park bit about the um, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle? Like they're always like, we need our privacy, but then they're doing all this press tour. Like the Smurls are being like, we're sick of this press, but then they're writing a book and a movie about the case. <laughs> we're tired of people coming to the house. Here's our book. Go buy our book that tells you all about it. Um, and be sure to watch our made-for-TV movie. Right, right. Now, again, you know, this is like another case that we can see, okay, they've got this whole case. It's the same story as it always is. Throw in a demon in this one and bada bing, bada boom. We got a book. We got a movie. I mean, what do you guys think about this case? Sounds very cookie cutter. Very kind of follow the protocol for Ed and Lorraine Warren, right? Okay. Okay. Yep. That makes sense. Throw in multiple spirits, maybe a couple just harmless ghosts and then... A demon in there, and yeah, there's your book deal. There's your movie deal. All right, now now the last case we'll get into, um, so this is the Snedeker House. This was in 1986, 1987. Um, this is uh, what Haunting in Connecticut was based on. And I think this, as far as I could find, was I believe like the last really big, like famous case the Warrens had. I mean, I'm sure they had other cases after this, um, but as far as I could find, this was the last like big one where they did like a lot of media, that type of shit. Um, so in 1987, the Snedeker family moved into a home in Southington, Connecticut. 
near the hospital where their son was receiving treatment for Hodgkin's disease. Now, as it turned out, the home was formerly the Hallahan Funeral Home, and it had been in operation for decades prior to it being turned into a duplex. Now, the owner claimed that he told the family about this before they moved in, and per a 1992 piece in the Hartford Courant, which is the local newspaper, uh, the family denies this. In fact, Carmen Snedeker said before moving in that she didn't even believe houses could be haunted. And I'm thinking, if she says this, why would it even matter if he told you or not? It's not like you would believe in hauntings, so you still would have moved in, right? You'd think. <laughs> just another, uh, just another piece of misinformation from them. I think. Okay. Okay. All right. Now, now in the basement, uh, they discover various mortuary tools, including a hoisting apparatus for coffins, a medical gurney, blood drains, embalming materials, even toe tags. Now, I don't know if you guys have seen a haunting in Connecticut, but I don't believe. They found a box full of human eyelids. I think that was just made for the movie. <laughs> Apparently there was like reports of the guy that was operating the funeral home was like doing weird shit with the bodies before he died. Yeah, but again, I I looked that up and hey, I well, couldn't find anything about it. I know, but I'm just saying I think that's where like that inspiration for the movie came from. Well, one article I was reading said the formal funeral home guy, mortician or whatever, was like accused of necrophilia. Yeah, so he probably did have a box of eyelashes, dude. Probably had but again, dicks that in was box. just a random. That was just a random one-off sentence. Like there was no proof of that that would have been a huge news story if the local mortician was fucking the bodies. Maybe. <laughs> okay, so um, so soon enough, the Snedekers were reporting all kinds of evil, including sexual attacks, apparitions, and sudden violent personality changes in their oldest son, who, like we said, was undergoing treatments. Now, he also described seeing a young man with long black hair all the way down to his hips. He would talk to him every day, sometimes even threaten him. And other times, he would just stand there and repeat his name. Philip. 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 Now, most shocking of all was the claim from both Carmen and Al Snedeker that unknown forces had raped and sodomized them. Now, in, eight, in 1986, Ed and Lorraine Warren arrived and proclaimed, Of course, the Snedeker house was infested with demons and possessed and then they launched a major media campaign around the haunting. Now, according to the Warren's son-in-law, they could never quite put their finger on the source of the haunting. Eventually, they allegedly got a priest to perform an exorcism on the house. Um, now, the Hartford Archdiocese would not confirm that the exorcism ever took place. Uh, so a lot of people point to this as them exaggerating or outright lying. And the family reported that the paranormal activity suddenly disappeared. And then they moved out a year later. Now, the case was, of course, turned into the 1993 book, In a Dark Place, colon, The Story of a True Haunting. Uh, this was written by Ed and Lorraine Warren, Carmen and Al Snedeker, and Ray Garten. 
A Discovery Channel documentary, A Haunting, was produced in 2002, and eventually a film based off the events was released in 2009, The Haunting in Connecticut. Now, the movie spins an elaborate tale that is clearly fabricated far beyond any incidents that had ever taken place in the home. And Lorraine Warren was reportedly not a fan of the film due to the inaccuracies in the story. Uh, maybe also because the Warrens are not mentioned at all in the story. Um, she stated in an interview, quote, It's embarrassing. Do you know the amount of time and effort that we put into that case? Do you know how many meetings with the clergy we had to finally bring closure to the family? Now, you guys had seen the film, right? I mean, what do you think of the film? I mean, not having any prior knowledge of what we know now from doing the research, I thought it was... Uh pretty pretty good at the time but it doesn't really hold up if you rewatch it yeah yeah definitely doesn't hold up like i i rewatched a bunch of like warren type movies for this episode and yeah that film definitely doesn't hold up um yeah i remember seeing it way back in the day when it first came out and i i thought it was absolutely horrid so i i wouldn't <laughs> i wouldn't even entertain a second watch <laughs> I even in like the Hollywood all the Hollywood versions of these movies like the ghosts always just want to like show you how they died. But it's always like so cryptic. Like why are they just moving shit around and being creepy? Like just come out and say how you fucking died, ghost, you know? Mhm. I think I think my favorite part was uh watching the interview that they did, the live interview with them. Oh yeah, that's on the uh what is that Sally Raphael show or whatever? Dude, that shit is fucking hilarious. Billy, if you haven't seen it, you got to check that out. Yeah, I definitely will. I haven't seen that. Like, like the guy is literally like, I felt a burning sensation in my anus and I knew that it was raping me. <laughs> yeah. Dude, even the, uh, the wife wow. is like, uh, so this is hilarious because it's one of those shows that's like Maury and Ed and Lorraine are there with the Snedekers and the, the audience is just grilling them. Like one guy's like, can you give me the priest's name? And Ed is like, we don't have to do that. And he's like arguing with this guy. Then they ask the wife. This the, is the name I give you. Yeah. Then they ask the wife about, uh, about like ghosts. And she's like, I don't believe ghosts have agenda. Yeah, <laughs> like they're but like, you just got fucking raped by one. Yeah, she's like, they're like, was this a female ghost or a male ghost that raped you? And the wife's like, I don't believe ghosts have agenda. So it's like, what the fuck are you talking about? And then, uh, no, I was like, like <laughs> he's like, look, we tried to ask what their names were, but they, but they, they just wouldn't tell us. You know, they just wouldn't <laughs> tell us. Dude, like one of the um, neighbors is saying, because like it was a duplex, so there was a lady living upstairs, and this family apparently lived like in the downstairs levels. And this guy's like, I talked to the lady who lives upstairs. She said nothing's ever happened in the house. And then they're like, that's fake. You're lying. <laughs> like immediately. <laughs> and it's just like, they get pissed, dude. You, this is like, and this is actually pretty, like, so I, like I said, I was re-watching a lot of the Warren films. I think it's in... uh it's either in the Conjuring Two or the Annabelle one. They actually have a scene where they're doing like a news interview, and um, Patrick uh, Wilson is like, or wait, is that his name? Yeah, Patrick Wilson, the actor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Patrick Wilson is actually like he does have a flash of Ed, like he's getting kind of pissed. Um, so that's a little that is accurate because Ed gets fucking pissed in this interview now. 
Now, some have suggested that with this case, uh, drugs and mental illness factored into the Snedeker haunting rather than actual paranormal activity. Um, Eventually, like Rob said, other facts on the case emerged, including all these troubles with the oldest son, who, besides having a drug habit, was diagnosed with schizophrenia on top of going through cancer treatments. Now, also, during all this crazy shit uh, that's going on with demonic possessed haunting in full swing, like Rob said, the upstairs neighbor never reported a single incident. Because remember, it's a duplex. Um, Now, perhaps the most damning uh, is the testimony of the author hired to write the original book for the Warrens and Snedekers. As we said, they brought on horror author Ray Granton uh, to help shape the Snedekers narrative. Now, he himself later called into the called into question the veracity of the accounts contained in his book and has since tried to distance himself from the work. He said, quote, the family involved which was going through some serious problems like alcoholism and drug addiction, could never keep their story straight. And I became very frustrated. It's hard working on a nonfiction book when all the people involved are telling you different stories. End quote. Now, when, when he voiced this concern to Ed Warren, Ed allegedly replied, quote, Oh, the crazy. You got some of the story. Just use what works and make the rest up. Just make it up and make it scary. <laughs> Now, uh, I guess there's a later interview that came out with paranormal investigator Benjamin paranormal investigator Benjamin Radford, and in this interview, the uh, writer Ray Garten uh, he said of Lorraine, "quote She told me the sun would come up tomorrow morning. I'd get a second opinion." So, I mean, what are we thinking here with this case? Do we think there's any legitimacy, or like, do these does the author going against his own work kind of just like fully debunk this one for yeah i mean the fact that the the garten guy voices his concerns to ed and ed's basically like oh well whatever just just say whatever you need to say you know we'll make a we'll make a million dollars off this thing (laughs) yeah make it up make it scary yeah i mean i guess like some people say that the guy could have gotten like cut out on some of the do it the money or like deals so maybe he had like a grudge but I mean, I don't know. It seems pretty fuck, fucking made up to me. Well, this is also from watching the interview and doing a little bit more research on the case. Um, the family was going through like extreme hardships. And then as soon as this story came up and they saw that they could make money off of it, that's when they really started like saying all this crazy stuff was happening because the like they were basically about to get kicked out they were like three months behind on rent if i remember correctly and then all of a sudden ed and lorraine come along and are like oh let's write a book about this let's make a movie about this and then all of a sudden it's like oh well this was happening this was happening all this so it's like i feel like that in itself is just right makes me feel this is complete bullshit because you go from barely being able to pay your rent to not even paying your rent to, oh, my house is haunted and all this crazy shit's going on. Let me write a book about it. And then, oh, now I have all this money and I'm going to move out. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. So throughout the Warren's paranormal investigative career, 
Ed and Lorraine collected various artifacts and relics that were or are allegedly attached to some form of demonic presence. Now, those items are now kept in the museum founded by Ed and Lorraine in the back of their Connecticut home. Now, Tony Spira, uh, who worked with his in-laws, Ed and Lorraine, for over 30 years and is still actively investigating demonic activity, now serves as the director of Nesper and head curator of the Warren Occult Museum today. Now, as of 2023, uh, the museum is currently closed due to a zoning issue, I believe I was reading. Um, But it's basically exactly as it was depicted in the Conjuring films. Uh, made up of a variety of artifacts taken from various investigations of Ed and Lorraine, and admission was $13 when it was open. Great number. Um, I was just going to say on that, I I looked into it because well, when we first started researching the topic, I thought, oh, that'd be cool if like we went to go visit it one day. But if you know anything about their house, it's basically right on the border of a cemetery, basically across the street from it. And it's a narrow one lane road. There's not, there's no like provided parking for the museum or anything. I mean, like you could pull into their front yard, but they don't have a parking lot. So all these people are just showing up and parking in the neighborhood. And there's basically, it's not like a, a, downtown city type place where you could just park on the street wherever so all the residents were just like dude stop fucking you're parking in my fucking driveway to go look at this museum like fuck off (laughs) yeah i mean like it is like with the success of the films i'm sure people fucking flock to that shit and like uh yeah i mean most most places are like yeah you can't run a fucking business out of your house you know (laughs) well i mean it just doesn't make sense to me that if the projections are what we think they are, that the Warrens made, you know, upwards of $80 million throughout their career. And then you don't even have the money to make a fucking parking lot for your museum. Like, come on, dude, what what are you doing with your backyard? Just turn it into a fucking parking lot and then charge people 40 bucks to go in the museum you can make a killing. Well, yeah, I also have some thoughts on that right here, but I mean, basically like, If we look at the museum just boiled down, oversimplified, the Warrens basically took supposedly haunted items from people in haunted locations, put them in their own home, labeled it an occult occult museum, and charged people to come look at it. I mean, does this sound like the well-being of the client is in their best interest? Absolutely not. It's like, oh... Well, one of the things I saw in the museum was like a a vampire coffin, allegedly <laughs> from like a re- like a real vampire from like the early 1920s or something. And there's like a picture of the dude like holding a pitchfork, pitchfork or something. Yeah, Nosferatu, like, he was called. Yeah, dude. <laughs> <laughs> got a legit like vampire. He was like, oh yeah, you know, check this out. <laughs> yeah, dude. Also, like, also if Ed is truly a devout Catholic who takes like demons, exorcism so seriously. You know, he follows all these rules of the church. He never mocks spirits or these diabolical forces. Do you think that Ed truly thought the museum was a good idea? 
Like, hey, come on. Hey, come on in. Give me 13 bucks. Come look at all these cursed objects that have insanely evil demonic forces attached to them. And oh, yeah, I got all this stuff right in the back room of my own house. I mean, come on, dude. That's insane. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me legend. of like the Haunted Mansion. Sorry, Rob, but just real quick. It reminds me of the Haunted Mansion at Disney World at the end when you're sitting in those like doom buggies. And it's like that part where you just like you're it's like a mirror and you see like see the, the ghost, ghost. riding yeah, riding like in your dune buggy that's like gonna follow Don't you. Don't take one home with you. Yeah, it's like come on, just pay thirteen dollars and we'll have some some demons follow you home. Yeah, I bet they had like a little mirror like that at the end of the occult museum. <laughs> There's like yeah. a gift shop and a mirror that has like the fucking ghosts in it. You can buy some holy water. Right. Um well, I was also going to say, I watched that video that I sent you guys, the overnight guys staying there. And this is coming from Tony. So, I mean, take it with a grain of salt, I guess, is what I'm saying. Um, They said that multiple times a month, they have a priest come and bless the museum and sprinkles holy water throughout it. And the super cursed artifacts are like doused in holy water. And the case that Annabelle is encased in, the wood of it is apparently stained with holy oil from Jerusalem. Yeah, but I mean, given what we know now, that's probably all bullshit. I mean, I agree, but I'm just saying these are the claims that they make to make it seem more believable or like, Oh, Hey, it's okay to come look at all this demonic stuff. We got it blessed by a priest. They got a fucking old Mm. creepy glass case. They threw an old raggedy and doll in there and they wrote positively do not open. Also, why the fuck would they put the devil tarot card on the outside of the case? Also in that (laughs) video, they move it from one case to another, even though they say they never take it out of the case. Yeah, it makes no sense. It's They're like, hey, we're, we're rebuilding the case for a third time, so we're going to move it out. And I was just like, Jesus Christ, dude. Like, if it's that if it's that crazy, like, just leave it fucking under lock and key, dude. Well, what it is, is oh. I believe um, the demonic entity inside the Raggedy Ann doll actually erodes the case from the inside. And the ca- these cases can only last so long, Rob. Because these de- diabolical demonic forces will eat it away from the inside, so they have to put it in a new case, you know? Could be true. I mean, if if you watch that video, they apparently picked up uh, some form of entity sitting on top of the case. Of course they did. Um, so. Saying. So let's get into the films, because obviously there have been countless films related to and adapted straight from the experiences described by the Warrens. Um, and, you know, if you, if you think about it, it's similar to the development of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You know, in the early days, there were books, uh, you had different authors, uh, who knows who had what rights signed and what contract. It was probably all a mess between like life rights, contracts, book deals, um, so, you know, there's these one-off movies you got made for TV films. The Haunting in Connecticut, um, was probably the most successful standalone film besides the Amityville franchise. Um, but now, you know, fast forward a few years, you've got an entire cinematic universe dedicated to the Warrens. 
Obviously, this kicked off in 2013 with the release of The Conjuring. This earned more than $300 million at the box office against a budget of $20 million. Since then, the Catholic cinematic universe, we'll call it, has expanded into the films The Conjuring 2, Annabelle, Annabelle Creation, Annabelle Comes Home, The Nun, The Nun 2, The Curse of La Llorona, The Conjuring 3, The Devil Made Me Do It, with more films in production. Now, the franchise as a whole has been insanely successful, having grossed a combined $2.2 billion against a combined budget of $208 million. Uh, It has become the highest grossing horror franchise to date. And from what I could gather, a lot of people that hold a negative opinion on the Warrens just straight up won't support these films because of how they portray the Warrens in a positive light. As opposed to like, you know, just straight up grifters. Um, But, you know, on the flip side of that, you got to think like. It is just a straight up fantasy, even if they are saying based on a true story, like how often is a movie 100 percent accurate? Probably never. Um, Also, B, the Warrens were involved in the collecting, writing and telling of these stories. So. Why the fuck would they make themselves out to be grifters? Of course, they're going to say, yeah, get Patrick Wilson, get Vera Farmiga, uh, get him in there. Make us look like heroes of the Catholic Church, Um, you know, and I think, Rob, this is what you were talking about. Like, if you look up their net worth from the movies, I guess like one source I was finding said they've made like Ed and Lorraine or I guess more so Lorraine made was worth like 88 million or their estate or something. But I feel like that's like a stretch. Like those net worth websites are never right. Like uh, apparently I found some article that said Lorraine received 150 K from the conjuring. So if you kind of like add that up to all the movies that they're straight up, like cast in with Patrick, like they mention Ed and Lorraine, probably like somewhere in the neighborhood of a million dollars they might have made would how, I how think, did they get 88 million from that that's crazy that's what i'm saying well, i i think that's well, just completely I was, fabricated i was thinking that possibly because yeah i was looking into that too and i could only find like two sources that were giving that estimation but my thinking was maybe they did the same kind of thing like hey we'll give you all these stories to base your movies on. And then like, this is the price that we're selling them to you, like the rights and stuff. Like maybe she's like in the contract she signed, it was like, Oh, like $50 million and you get like 10 movies out of it or whatever. Okay. Yeah. But I don't know. I mean, I don't think they made anywhere near $80 million. I and I mean maybe that's like a maybe that eighty eight million figure is like from the beginning like all their book deals and movie deals combined like throughout have made that much oh, yeah. maybe it well the one of the sites I saw said that before the all the Conjuring and Annabelle movies came out it was only like around five or six million and then it's like upwards of eighty after the movie deals. So. Yeah, I mean, obviously those are like insanely popular and like we said 2.2 billion with The Conjuring alone, The Conjuring franchise alone. Um Now, now furthermore, I guess like look looking at the paranormal industry as a whole, it basically thrives off of the unknown. 
um, you know, these stories true or not, they can they can provide a good living for authors and paranormal investigators, both of whom are probably looking for more content as opposed to actually giving a fuck about the truth. Uh, now you take that even further and filmmakers are basically at the end of the chain, even though these guys uh, probably produce the biggest profits like we saw with the Conjuring franchise. They're basically the last people in this game of telephone. So, you know, obviously the films are going to be like the furthest thing from the truth. But I don't know. I mean, what do you guys think about the films in general? Um, do you have like a favorite one, a favorite series? I mean, what do we got on the films? I really do like the Conjuring films. Um, I didn't re- I never saw The Devil Made Me Do It, but definitely love The Conjuring 1, Conjuring 2. Bill Wilkins in The Conjuring 2, his voice creeped me out. It's so creepy. Um, but in regards to kind of what we're speaking about, um, just, just in terms of the, the moral perspective of filmmakers saying that, you know, making movies and saying they're based on a true story. Look, I mean, it's fiction. Uh, I think that those, um, terms are used very loosely. There's not really anything to define what you can, you know, call based on a true story. And I think that, you know, they basically hear the hear these stories about the Warrens and they go, well, whatever, whether or not they're true or not, we're going to just make these movies, make them as creepy as possible. And bam, put us put a label on them, call them true, you know, and just run with it. And I guess we're going to kind of get a little bit more into the conspiracy theories in regards to Ed and Lorraine being a little sketchier than people think and. I think these studios just don't they don't care because I feel like the 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 general view audience the viewer of these types of movies like they don't really care what the truth is they're just there to be scared. I feel like most people going into them know it's a movie and I feel like like we talked about the Blair Witch project being like one of those early films to like use the moniker of like this was true and now you see a lot of films doing that just to try to capitalize off of like that lightning in a bottle success that that had like hey if we put true story more people are going to come see it more people are going to be intrigued by it but yeah at the end of the day I feel like especially with horror like people don't really fucking care I mean it's not I don't know, like these aren't necessarily branded as like biopics on the Warrens, even though they do kind of seem to be put across like that. But, you know, it's not like fucking this is this isn't like a history film that they're like, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like I feel like people just don't really care with horror. They just want to see something that fucking scares them. I mean, obviously, like The Conjuring is probably the best one. The third one, I will say Devil Made Me Do It. Not great also rewatched it just not good um i never uh i never saw that one but i think the original like the conjuring and annabelle are probably the two best obviously i mean it's always hard to have like a super successful um sequel i guess you could say dude a lot of people Mm -hmm. really like annabelle creation I thought that third Annabelle, Annabelle Comes Home, was the best one because it's like, it's like the whole museum like comes. It's like Night at the Museum, but in the Warrens' <laughs> fucking house. Yeah, oh, I, re- yeah. I remember okay. watching that one because that's the one where she like goes in there at night and like 
the stuff starts coming to life basically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Even though the daughter, like we said, never lived with, uh, the parents. Yeah. But I think, you know, after, unfortunately, after doing all this research, it just kind of like puts a shadow on it because now knowing that most of, well, a majority of their claims are bullshit, it just, I mean, they're still good movies at the end of the day, but just knowing that they're not the people depicted in the movies and it's all just glamorized and kind of exaggerated just kind of like kills it for me. Right. I mean, I also like the nun, like I think the nun and then I heard the nun too was good. And those are, I think the most like successful of the franchise besides maybe the original conjuring. But, uh, I rewatched the nun and I, I remember not liking it when I saw it in theaters, but it's actually not too bad. It's kind of cool. It has some good scenes. Wasn't a homeboy the guy from Insidious as well? Yep, which is also mm-hmm. James James Wan. Uh, yeah, don't don't at me, but I think the Insidious movies are better. I'd probably uh, agree with that. Yeah, the first Insidious, creepy. Remember that scene where the uh, the demon like pops up behind the dude? It's like the first <laughs> time you see him. It's like the, and most the camera, like, sweet. yeah, and he's just like. <sighs> <laughs> And you're like, um, oh my god! <laughs> yeah, I mean those. I mean James Wan, brilliant fucking director, brilliant writer. But yeah, it's like we said at the end of the day, I don't think he gives a fuck whether he's portraying the Warrens in a real deal. But then again, he, like he's also work. He was working with Lorraine. Like if she was a consultant on the film, he's not gonna be like, oh yeah, you guys are full of shit. I'm gonna make you out to be like fucking bullshit peddling grifters you know um now now sadly uh ed died on august 23rd 2006 so he never got to see his life expanded into a cinematic universe and lorraine though she did serve as a consultant on at least the first conjuring film she died on april 18th 2019 uh so pour one out for them uh now according to their website which is maintained by their son-in-law, Tony Spera, the Warrens have been considered America's preeminent experts on the subject of spirits and demonology for the past half century. While religious authorities have constantly turned to Ed and Lorraine to control some of the most profane outbreaks of diabolical phenomenon in the country, (laughs) if you had nobody that would listen or help, you turn to the Warrens. Now, as we said, the Warrens' devout Catholic faith, which includes an inherent belief in the supernatural and a world beyond, is what shaped their entire career. As the Warrens worked closely with the Catholic Church during multiple exorcisms, and their faith played a major role in their investigations. Uh, Now, like I said earlier, there was a lot of cases of them describing law enforcement calling them or the church recommending them. Now, some speculate, like we were saying, they were constantly colluding with the police and the Catholic church in order to help bolster their cases, which does make sense. And at the very least, I could see Ed doing this because the case is going to hit a lot harder if you have members of law enforcement or the church involved. Um, This is probably also why Ed is 
uh, prominently reminding us of this throughout his book, The Demonologist. Um, like, like we said, bragging about being the only non-priest to uh, perform an exorcism. Now, as we said, uh, accusations of fraud had basically followed the Warrens since day one. Um, so claims of fraud, like we said, uh, you got the horror author Ray Gratton, um, who said he would get a second opinion if Lorraine told him the sun was coming up. He also said that uh, Ed Warren told him to make up the story for the Snedeker family. Uh, he also claims that Ed's business took off after the success of The Exorcist in 1973. Um, now, in a 2009 blog post uh, at thenest.com, a website of the Connecticut-based New England Skeptical Society, Steve Novella wrote that the Warrens had a ton of evidence, but none of it stands up to rigorous scientific testing, and most of it not even to cursory testing. Now, also, Carl Gatzel, the brother of the allegedly possessed child David Gatzel from the uh, Arnie Johnson case, uh, like we said, he sued Lorraine after the book came out, um, accusing the Warrens of exploiting his family. Um, he said, Lorraine Warren is nothing but a fraud. She says she has documentation, but she has nothing. Now, Jared Brittle, uh, the author of many books about the Warrens, including The Demonologist, filed a $900 million lawsuit on March 29th, 2017, against Warner Brothers, New Line Cinema, James Wan, and others, claiming that he had the exclusive rights to the Warrens' story and that it had been stolen by the studios and producers. Uh, now, probably the most damning of all is the allegations of Judith Penny. Um, so she claims that in the early 1960s, Ed Warren initiated a relationship with her when she was just 15 at the time. Now, he did this with Lorraine's knowledge, and she eventually lived in the Warren's house as Ed's lover for four decades. Uh, now, <laughs> there's also like a story. And again, a lot of this, I think, is like he said, she said. And you can see like a lot of people start to come after them after these conjuring films come out and they're making like hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, uh, you know, Ed is also deceased at this time, but, uh, she claims that it, she became pregnant and Lorraine like wanted her to get an abortion because it would hurt their reputation. Um, now, the Warren family denies this. Um, they say that Penny was actually taken in as a neglected child at age 18. And she was, it was her job to kind of look after the house while they traveled. Um, but it is interesting to note. And again, I don't know how true this is. I saw this on a, uh, I believe it was a Hollywood Reporter article that allegedly Lorraine's deal with New Line uh, to serve as a consultant uh, for The Conjuring included some unusual restrictions. The films couldn't show her or her husband engaging in crimes, including sex with minors, child pornography, prostitution, or sexual assault. Neither the husband nor the wife could be depicted as participating in extramarital sexual relationships. Um, so that is an oddly specific like 
caveat to have in your deal, you know? Um, now, basically, Penny hasn't gone on record with any of this. And the only reason this came to light is because it was buried within the brittle lawsuit. Like, this guy basically came at them and was like, hey, I have this information. And do you think that Patrick Wilson is going to want to play Ed, Ed Warren when he realizes what kind of guy he truly was if any of this shit comes out? Um I guess basically like the gist of it was that like the lawsuit said the studio ignored the truth in order to protect its billion dollar franchise, which like, of course, that's the case. It's just like the dude, you know, the dude that played the Flash and he got like convicted of all those like fucking assault crimes and shit, but they had already filmed the movie. So they were like, yeah, we're just going to keep releasing this, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The... I don't know. It's it's weird because like you said, all this stuff came out after they were making all that all that all you know crazy amounts of money. So could be people just trying to take advantage of the situation. Um yeah. obviously, as Ryan previously said, it's a little he said she said kind of shit, but they have stated that she did live in the house with them and it's just a bit odd to me that you got this girl living in the house with you your own daughter doesn't live in the house with you and she's like they told people like like some people they told oh she's like our niece that we're taking care of or like some people oh she's just the housekeeper that takes care of it when we're gone it's like everything looking at like from the outside looking in just makes it a really weird situation because if she was your niece, why wouldn't you just stick to that story? If she was just the housekeeper, why not just stick to that story? And then there's like other reports that she said that she would go on certain like ghost hunting things with only Ed and even said that he, he like took pictures of her in this graveyard and said, Oh, I saw like this ghost. And it's like this ghost of this lady, but it was just a picture of her in the graveyard late at night. So she has like evidence of fabricating. uh, Yeah. So it's like, she's not, she's not just putting her personal shit out there, which like, if you want to believe that you can, if you don't, you don't, but she's not only putting her personal shit out there. She's putting out like, Hey, these guys, aren't really who they say they are they like had me fabricating stories and like falsifying evidence and then hey also on top of it ed was banging me the whole time it's like <laughs> dude that's like right. uh, and if these guys are actually pulling all these you know fabricating all these stories and just kind of banking booking movie deals like i, I wouldn't be surprised that ed's pulling that crap it is like when you look so if you if it was just this that came out, it would be like, oh, yeah, like we said, she's just coming out because they're making all this money. But then when you look at like every fucking case and there's like multiple people, including people they worked with, written books with that are like these people told me to make shit up. They're fabricating shit like there's a lot of cases that have been debunked. I mean, it all just kind of like strikes against them, you know, for sure. You have so many people say, you know coming out saying that Ed told told them they're going to get rich off these stories and oh yeah just make it scary and it just it just it's it's it all compounds so much that eventually you just go yeah that's probably what's happening 
<laughs> right. And then, I mean, you can also make the case like, yes, all this stuff came out after the fact, but also, you know, on the flip side of it, I think, you know, I've never personally been through something that traumatic in my life, but if you did experience something like that wild and then all of a sudden, you know, the most popular horror franchise is about this guy that was basically a piece of shit. You probably would want people to at least know about it and be like, Hey, you know, the, these movies are making this guy out to be some like God fearing Christian man that loves his wife and has this amazing family and he's fighting off demons for people. But actually he's been banging me since I was 15 years old and forced me to get an abortion. And then, you know, had me going on ghost hunting trips with him and faking shit. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's a it's a pretty uh pretty pretty damning uh claim, you know. For sure. And and I'm I'm pretty sure I read that um Penny Penny said or Judith, not Penny, Judith said that like she suffered some serious mental struggles obviously i mean that that's that's traumatic stuff and also i'm pretty sure that judith had claimed that she had seen ed beat lorraine so he was out also allegedly physically abusive yeah i I saw that too which again like that's fully from the case saying that like the dude had the life rights and like basically kind of threatening like we'll expose all this shit if you don't like i don't know settle out of court i don't know if they settled or what but you know i mean look into that um maybe it's still going on i think it but i think i was reading something that it came out that it really wasn't that guy and it was somebody else who was filing the case um you know a lot of lawyer talk a lot of lots of ins lots of outs lots of jelly in the donuts probably (laughs) um Mm -hmm. But let's fucking let's let's close this. Let's round this one out on this All Hallows. Was that an Elvis? Was that an Elvis sneak disc, dude? No, dude. Jelly donuts and underage curls. Okay, come on. <laughs> We're not slandering Elvis's name on here. Uh, all right. So, whether you believe them or not, there is no argument that the Warrens have left a major imprint on the world of paranormal investigation that few, if any, can match. Now, whether that imprint is positive or negative is up to you, the listeners. Um, It's up to your interpretation, you know. In a world that laughs off ghosts and the paranormal, the Warrens delivered a concise message. The fairy tale is true. The devil exists, God exists, and for us as people, our very destiny hinges on which one we elect to follow. Now, their work, when looked at from a neutral standpoint, seems to consist of often improvised and shaky logic of the religious ideas they so devoutly believed in. Combining Catholic worldviews about demonology and the supernatural with other material pulled from New Age metaphysics and pop culture. Most of their books can be oversimplified to a book on why you should be a churchgoer and pray every day. But in addition to all of this, one of the biggest difficulties in investigating or taking any of the Warren's cases at face value is little to no information exists outside of what the Warren's themselves have provided. 
I mean, my honest opinion after doing all of this research is that it's pretty clear they were basically selling this shit to whoever would buy it. I mean, just looking to churn out book deal after book deal. Uh, most of the cases that out, aren't outright ridiculous follow the same basic plot. Struggling family finds the deal of a lifetime on a house. They move in. Weird small things start happening. It intensifies. They have to call in the church to come get the demon out uh, because, of course, it's always a demon. You know, I was watching A Haunting in Connecticut, and it's literally almost the exact same plot of Amityville Horror. Do we really think this is a coincidence that all these stories were the same? Look at the one factor in all the cases. Ed and Lorraine Warren. You know, basically the business model was you find a compelling case, you do an investigation, you show face, get the story built up. If the press or church gets involved, even better. Then you get a book deal with whoever will buy the story or life rights and bada bing, they collect a check. Now, eventually this paid off in the most extreme way for them as Hollywood got their hands on it. And once again, the Warrens have a chance to profit because they already got the family to sign away the rights to them. Now, like we said, it gets complicated with who was signed to what book deal and who has the actual life rights, which is, I think, the reason for a lot of the lawsuits following the films. Um, you also got to look at the time this shit was happening, the 70s. This is way before glimpses of the internet, so they're probably just like, oh yeah, add this in, add that in. No one's going to be able to find out. Um I mean, it's like I was finding out a lot of these stories on their own website don't even hold up to the tiniest amount of research. Um, so basically, it's like they use a topic that's interesting to them. They build a reputation for themselves, use that reputation to find a mark and boom, follow the business model above. And oh, yeah, we're going to take a trophy from from each of our cases, each of our conquests, and then we'll charge people admission to come see that. Now, furthermore, for the Warrens, it's almost as if the Hollywood stuff kind of came as an added bonus. You know, like we said, prior to 73, the Exorcist, um, prior to 1973, like before the release of The Exorcist, like once that came out, that was really the first movie to put this kind of shit on the map and really bring in the like religious supernatural world of devils and spirits into the real world as something tangible, something physical that could actually happen. It's not like they set out to be movie stars, but more or less were kind of just in the right place at the right time to have their legacy cemented and then immortalized in these massively successful films. I mean, what do we think? Do you guys have any like closing thoughts on the Warrens uh, before we give this one our our rating scale? I mean, what do we got? Well, I just want to say that before doing the research on this topic, I was kind of like in the same boat as Billy because I saw the movies. They were scary. They were cool. And then the more you look into actual evidence, finding actual f anything based on an actual fact is damn near impossible to find. Right. And it just seems story after story, multiple people saying, I mean, I think the probably like one of the biggest letdowns to me was finding out that, uh, 
fucking George Lutz and his lawyer just sat around fucking drinking and making up stories to put in the book. Right. The Amityville Horror, which is what the movies are based off of. And it's just like, damn, dude, you started all the way at all the way at damn near the beginning of that, in my opinion, is like the biggest case that they that's like what pushed them into the forefront of this whole paranormal research thing. And, and it's all bullshit. The, and it's all fabricated bullshit that was made up on a night of drinking, which, you know, yeah, it made for a fucking cool ghost story. But at the same time, it's just there's very little shred of evidence that you can find truth in in any of these cases. And it just, I mean, obviously, like the business model worked for him, but it's just a little bit of a letdown because it's like, damn, you know, for so long I was watching these movies and, you know, growing up thinking it was so cool. And then you do all the actual like research to kind of connect the dots and just find out that it's all a bunch of horse shit is a little bit of a letdown. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you just you both said. I mean, Rob, I agree with you in terms of when I first saw the Conjuring movies, I thought they were awesome. To be fair, I never looked into the Warrens. Um, I, I just, I, I don't know. Like, I guess I didn't care enough to when I saw the movies. But, you know, have it with us deciding to ha- make this our Halloween special and with Ryan, your awesome research, and, and Rob as well, um, and with you know the research I did, I just realized, wow, like there's so much more to the story that um, people just yeah. I I really don't think that people care enough, but when you really dig in, yeah, I definitely think they're just a bunch of frauds. To be quite honest with you, and you know, not I don't want to sit here and completely fucking bash the Warrens on this one. I mean, I do think that I I would like to give them credit for pushing this kind of stuff because i mean you know you said it at the top of the episode all three of us you know huge horror fans we love this kind of shit you know this is what you know a main reason why we're fucking doing this podcast in my opinion and without all these stories coming to light and being made into movies and being made into books a lot of people would still have that same like closed-minded belief of like oh ghosts aren't real like this shit is fake but it just is, in my opinion, a little disheartening because I do believe that that stuff exists to an extent. But just to find out that, you know, these guys are mostly full of shit, it, that, I think that was the main point I was trying to get across is like, you know, props for getting all this stuff out there and like boosting the genre and getting more people to... I guess be interested in it, but at the same time, it's like, damn, dude, it sucks that you know it's all bullshit. Ninety <laughs> yeah. percent of it is just fucking made up. Because like when we when we first started to do it, I I was looking at the museum, and then that's when I started watching those videos, and I was like, oh man, like we should go visit the museum, we should go up there, and then now I'm like, dude, I don't want to fucking go see that shit. Yeah, I mean. I mean, I think it would it would still be cool just because of the like lore within paranormal culture. But I don't know. It'd be cool to say you saw it, but I mean, at the same time, it's like I would be just as stoked to go see that one I was telling you about in Vegas. You know, that haunted museum that's there. Exactly. Or like go go to Salem. You know, I think that would be a cool thing to do as well. All right. So I mean, 
there you have it. I mean, let's bring back our rating system for this one, and which I think we're all probably in agreement here. Uh, sometimes on these cases, we do a rating system, one through five. Flat Earth being complete bullshit. The moon landing being maybe a little more believable, but still pretty much bullshit. 9-11, <laughs> jury's still out. JFK, a little more believable. And then MK Ultra, most believable, documented, credible, um, so, I mean, what are you guys giving this on a rating of one to five? I'm saying flat earth, complete frauds. I'm in agreement with, uh, what we were just saying. I do think it is cool, but I got to give it the flat earth rating. I got to give it MK ultra, man. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, no, uh, definitely flat earth calling. I'm calling them on their bullshit. I, I want to join the club and say flat earth, but just purely on the fact that I want to give them credit where credit's due. And I think it's cool that even regardless of how much of their stories and investigations were based on lies and bullshit, I think that it's cool that, you know, they did go on to become the most renowned paranormal investigators and, you know, without those movies, I don't think that we would be as intrigued with the topic as we are. So I'm going to give them the moon landing rating of two. Okay. Nice. All right. So so you still respect them, even if it is all built on bullshit. Uh, okay. That makes sense. Um, now, on this one, I want to cite the documentary Devil's Road, the true story of Ed and Lorraine Warren, uh, which is now streaming on Discovery Plus and HBO Max. Uh, the Demonologist, The Extraordinary Career of Ed and Lorraine Warren by Jared Brittle. Uh, TonySpera.com, which is the Nesper <laughs> website. He changed it to his own name. Uh, a lot of stuff on Perfect. there. Like I said, very inaccurate um, with the dates and consistencies. Uh, MentalFloss.com for the article Ed and Lorraine Warren, Paranormal Investigator Facts. Uh, TravelChannel.com for Devil's Road, the true story of Ed and Lorraine Warren, 11 things you need to know about the legendary legendary paranormal investigators, Corrent.com, uh, uh, which is the article from the Connecticut newspaper about The Conjuring 3 and other popular films by the Warrens, uh, BostonGlobe.com for The Conjuring, Bathsheba Sherman, Not a Witch, Halloween, Rhode Island, DreamingCasuallyPoetry.blogspot.com, which is the the lady uh, Jamie's investigation. That's her blog. Check it out. Like I said, she's got a lot of good investigations on there. Uh, Army.mil for the article on West Point. And HistoryVersHollywood.com for The Conjuring 2 Enfield Poltergeist. And on that one, once again, guys, happy Halloween. I uh, hope you all have a good one and stay safe out there. Happy Halloween, Loyal Legion. Thank you guys, as always, for tuning in. Uh, you know what time it is. Hit up podcastfromouterspace.com. Check out our merch. We got some new stuff on there. We just did release our last episode was on the Ouija board. Uh, we got a cool new Ouija board t-shirt for sale as well as some cool stickers that'll come with it and uh you know our very own ryan scott has set up the podcast from outer space hotline that number if you dare to call is 619-866-6432 
feel free to hit us up with any stories. Let us know what you think about the Warrens. And um, if you got anything you want to hear us, you know, maybe discuss on future episodes, we'd love to hear your guys' ideas. And as always, thanks for tuning in. Yes. Happy Halloween, everyone. Um, you know, keep supporting the Conjuring movies. Do that. You know, just just keep just keep <laughs> making the Warrens richer and richer. You know, that's that's kind of what it seems like they wanted from the beginning. Shout out, Warrens. Um, and <laughs> we appreciate all the listeners out there. Y'all are awesome. You know, stay safe out there for Halloween. I know it's a wheat day. That sucks. But live it up regardless. You know, do some spooky stuff. Uh, like Rob said, uh, hit us up on the hotline, 619-866-6432. We definitely want to hear your stories. I know that uh, a bunch of y'all have already sent some in. So, you know, thank you for that. And for anyone else that wants to send some spooky stuff, we'd love to hear from you. And with that being said, we will see you next time. Peace out.